As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. What is the nature of reality? This is essentially what we're showing is that our thought processes are changing our reality in the future. That's through just very well accepted behavioral, perceptual and physiological mechanisms. And all this is showing is that sometimes the effects can add up and be really profound. Today we talk about the placebo effect, mind over matter, and the cognitive traps that correlate with IQ. David Robson is an author of science with a unique focus on human intellect and behavior. He has a degree of mathematics from Oxford. We both bond over our similar degrees in mathematics, except of course he's actually done something productive with his. He's worked for New Scientist, BBC, and he writes for several popular science magazines. Today we discuss the intelligence trap and the expectation effect. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. I have a background in mathematical physics. This podcast is called Theories of Everything is dedicated to the exploration of theories of everything from a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as exploring the role consciousness has to the fundamental laws of nature. Each sponsor, as well as the patrons, improves the quality of the videos drastically. It improves the depth, it improves the frequency, and it goes toward paying the staff, for instance, someone who's editing this full-time right now, and then we have an operations manager. Thank you, and enjoy this interview with David Robson. David, thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. I've been listening and reading your book for about, it was months ago, and then intermittently in the past few weeks. So thank you. It's an honor to speak with you. You too. What got you interested in intelligence? Yeah, I mean, it's something I was interested in since I was, you know, quite a young child. Um, Because in the UK, we have this kind of streamed school system. Um, Now it's only kind of in my area in the southeast of England, but we... Um, take this exam called the 11 plus um, that decides which type of senior school we go to. Um, And essentially it's an IQ test by any other name. And if you score in the top 25%, you um, go to a grammar school, which is meant to be for kind of academically gifted children. The rest go to a comprehensive school. Uh, So I took the exam. I did quite well, you know, got into my uh, senior school. But I was just kind of a bit baffled by what this test was really measuring because it wasn't The version that I took, you know, really wasn't looking at what I'd learned at school previously. It was all of these, you know, verbal, nonverbal questions that um, didn't seem to be directly related to kind of education. Um, Such as? And so I just wondered, you know, it was kind of word association things, the the kind of uh, mental rotation exercises, all of these things that I later learned, you know, kind of standard IQ questions. Um, So... It, it seemed quite narrow. And I guess I was always interested in like, what's it mean to be intelligent? What 
you know, what is that measuring? How kind of generalizable can it be? And then when I became a science journalist, like I became super interested in this phenomenon because, um, you know, I was interviewing some of the world's greatest minds, you know, people who, you know, changed our understanding of the universe. And you kind of just had to look a little bit more deeply into their private lives to realize that while they were obviously showing high intelligence in their particular field, and um, they could also be um, like surprisingly stupid. And there really is of a word for it in other areas of their life. So, you know, there was this guy, Kerry Mullis, who developed the polymerase chain reaction, which we use for all kinds of genetic testing. And, you know, it's the PCR test that we use for COVID. Um, but he was a climate change denier. He was an HIV denier. He um, even believed, you know, that he'd traveled in the astral plane, that he'd met this kind of glowing raccoon in the forests of California, you know, he had some very strange beliefs that just didn't seem to be scientific, let alone the kind of um, kind of thinking that we would expect from a Nobel Prize winner. He won the Nobel Prize for chemistry for the PCR test. Um, so, you know, it was really that that kind of led me back to this kind of old childhood fascination with intelligence. And I just wanted to understand, like, what do we mean by intelligence? What does the IQ test measure and what does it miss? And what are the other kind of mental traits and what are the, the other mental traits that we should be kind of cultivating and appreciating that aren't measured in kind of standard academic tests? What do intelligence tests measure? And what is intelligence? Yeah, I mean, so the, the idea had been that, you know, we have this kind of generalized intelligence, and this goes right back to the early 20th century, um, which is like a kind of underlying brain power. Um, it's kind of almost like the kind of processing capability of the brain. Um and actually, you know, we know that IQ tests do measure something meaningful and that they may be reflecting some kind of anatomical difference in the brain that does reflect a kind of general processing ability. Because we know that even those, you know, very narrow abstract tasks that I described that I took in my childhood IQ test, well, you know, people's performance on that does seem to predict their academic achievement and then also how well they do in their different professions and especially kind of professions that need kind of greater um, you know, classically kind of intellectual inputs so of things like law, medicine, science, you know. Um, so w if we have a high IQ, we probably are quicker to learn kind of complex stuff, quicker to understand complex stuff. Um, so, you know, it's useful. I, I don't want to kind of, uh, you know, downplay the, the kind of relevance of IQ. But the fact is that we also know that it's by no means the only thing that's important about someone's intellectual abilities. Um, so, you know, even if you're looking at those kind of classic professions, you know, only um, kind of can explain the uh, a kind of minority of the variance in people's performance, you know, so there's lots more to IQ, even if you're a lawyer or a scientist or a, um, a doctor, you know, it's not going to make you incredibly creative, for example. So we know that it's missing something important. And then what I really wanted to look at in the intelligence trap was just, well, like, what is it missing and how does it relate to things like rationality and wisdom and, you know, kind of how we navigate all of the complex challenges that we face in life that aren't just based on a kind of academic test of, of knowledge and learning. In the book, something that stood out to me was that there are a variety of cognitive biases and there are some that people who have a high IQ are more prone to. Can you talk about those? Yeah, I mean, totally. So it's quite complex, as you'd expect, um, that, you know, and nuanced as well. Um, but essentially, like, scientists have been looking 
uh, these kind of cognitive biases that have been studied by people like Daniel Kahneman since, you know, the 1970s. And we know, you know, humans act kind of irrationally in lots of different situations. And to just give one example, we suffer from this um, thing called the sunk cost fallacy, where, you know, if you're um, pouring resources into a project, like we feel very reluctant to abandon that project, even when we realize that actually any gains we're going to get from continuing are only going to kind of, um, they're not going to pay off. They're only going to lead us to a further loss. Um, you know, the famous example of that is with the um, Concorde project in the UK and France. It was like taking like heaps of money from both governments. Um, it was never going to be profitable. But once they'd started, the governments just couldn't face kind of cutting off the project. So they continued, even though it was always going to be a loss. Is the Vietnam War an example of that as well? Yeah, that kind of thing would absolutely be an example. Yeah, 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 where uh, it's just really difficult to kind of um, cut your losses and accept defeat, um, even even when you know that you're never going to win. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the uh, we've known that exists for like decades, but I, what the new research had shown, um, research on what's known as the rationality quotient, had actually shown us that people with, you know, high IQs compared to low IQs are really no more or less susceptible to that. You know, being super intelligent does not make you more rational in that case. Um, so that's one example where, surprisingly, intelligence doesn't make you kind of more logical. Um, but then there are other phenomena where actually high intelligence can even make you more irrational. Um, and that is when it gets to kind of justifying your bad decisions. So if you have a really deeply founded belief in something, you know, it might be like Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels, um, that you believe in the paranormal. Uh, well, what we know there is that then the more intelligent you are, actually, the more kind of uh, resilient you are to any contradictory information. So your intelligence actually protects your beliefs and prevents you from looking at the, the evidence that might actually lead you to a more rational point of view. And we saw that beautifully with Arthur Conan Doyle in all of his writing you know, he's actually drawing on all of his creativity and his scientific knowledge to try to justify some really crazy beliefs. Um, so, for example, he, he believed in fairies. He thought that these young girls in Yorkshire in the UK had taken photographs of fairies kind of around the babbling brook at the end of their garden. And, um, you know, other sceptics around him, you know, pointed out things like um, that you could kind of see their cardboard cutouts stuck together with pins. Um, he said, well, actually, oh, you know, like the pins are stuck in the middle of, well, those marks in the photos only appear in the middle of the fairies' bellies. So he took it as evidence that it was um, a belly button and and it was a sign of the umbilical cord. Um, so he actually used that contradictory evidence to then make this weird inference that fairies are born um, in the same way that humans are with an umbilical cord. And then he draw on these theories of electromagnetism, like Maxwell's new theories, to explain why normally we couldn't see fairies with the naked eye. Um, so he was actually using his knowledge there to justify this very strange belief that all of the people around him who may have been less intelligent just couldn't actually believe. But it's almost like his intelligence was fueling this rational belief because it was so central to him. And you look into his biography, and you kind of see that he uh, was mourning the loss of his son. And so the belief in this kind of spirit realm actually became really important to him personally because he wanted to believe that 
you know, there was an afterlife that he would be able to see his son again. Uh, but then he was actually, you know, rather than helping him to deal with that grief, you know, these beliefs were just causing him to pour, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds into kind of supporting these fraudulent mediums into, you know, he ruined his reputation amongst his peers by kind of um, supporting all of these beliefs. So it really backfired for him. And that was, for me, a very clear example of how intelligence can can kind of lead us astray. Uh, it can actually drive us along the wrong path in life if we don't have kind of checks and balances to make sure that we're applying it correctly. Do you make an equivalence between irrationality and illogicalness, illogicality? Yeah, I mean, I do think they're very related. And essentially, you know, when to talk about irrationality, I'm kind of trying to say when it's all of those cases where we're, we're not making the optimum decision based on the information in front of us. And, you know, anyone can make a mistake if you don't have sufficient information. Um, but, you know, in someone like Arthur Conan Doyle's case, you know, there was enough information available, even if we don't, didn't have all the scientific knowledge we have today, there was enough to suggest that these beliefs in the paranormal were very irrational. But, um, and, you know, plenty of people around him were sceptical, but he wasn't. So that's, you know, that's what I mean by irrationality. Um, but irrationality could affect things like financial decision-making, you know, causing you to pay too much for um, a property or to make a bad investment. You know, it could be in all kinds of areas, but it's essentially when you're making the a less optimum decision, um, despite evidence that should should have helped you to make a better decision. Does rationality incorporate healthiness into it? So what I mean is that it's rational to make a decision or to have your goal as something that's salutary in the long run, whereas logical is just following a sequence of steps like modus ponens and so on, like axioms. I think that's a great way of looking at it. You know, logic I think could be restricted more to you know like a very specific kind of question um but like i do think when we're talking about irrational uh, when we're talking about rationality and irrationality we are really thinking about you know how do we make decisions that align with our long-term goals and in making the kind of optimum life for ourselves the reason i ask that is then could there not be the argument that sir arthur conan doyle was doing what's rational because it provided him comfort and so some of these false beliefs, let's just say false in a scientific sense or factual sense, and that's putting a huge asterisk because we don't know the answers to large questions, but let's just put a pin in that for now. That belief in quote-unquote factually false ideas can be rational because they're adaptive. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not the kind of definition of rationality I would take because I feel like, so say, you know, I feel like, uh, yeah, it's true, Arthur Conan Doyle, kind of wanted to have that emotional comfort but i think if you asked him would you be willing to believe in these things even if they were proven to be untrue he would have valued truth above emotional comfort like i'm certain looking at his writings that he really wanted to believe the truth and felt like he was spreading the truth for other people um so it's all about the kind of alignment of his goals but i really think he did actually value rationality and we can see that in Sherlock Holmes, the character himself, is like a, the epitome of rationality. So I think like if, yeah, like I, I just think in that case, it's like he would have rather had a rational belief than a comforting belief, like a, a true belief than a comforting belief. But he was still drawn to this comforting belief because um, 
Yeah, because I, I guess he couldn't somehow couldn't resist it. Yeah, but I I agree. Like I think it, it you know definitions of rationality depend on what you value in life. But you know scientists and psychologists in particular talk about epistemic rationality, and that's really where you value truth and you're always looking for truth. And then if that is your goal and you're then believing something that is not supported by the evidence, then is irrational in an epistemic sense. And that's absolutely what Arthur Conan Doyle was suffering from. Let's get philosophical for a moment. Would valuing the truth, even if it led you to a deleterious outcome, be rational? So let's say, I value the truth. I want to know how potent can this virus get? So I'm going to make a virus or make Ebola and cross that with whatever is extremely virulent because I'm interested in the truth, but yet that has the potential of destroying the entire world. Or let me investigate an even more potent bomb than the hydrogen bomb. That's a truthful endeavor, a scientifically truthful one. My question is, just because something is truthful or factually the case, does pursuing it mean that you're irrational? Or can there be something irrational about pursuing the truth? Like, should you value truth above what's nourishing? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like Icarus, you know, flying too close to the sun. You know, um, is is it always good to push kind of human understanding that far? Um, now, I would say that's kind of whether you pursue that or not, you know, isn't to me a question of rationality. Um, because say, say for some of these questions, I think it's perfectly rational for you to say, I don't know, and to have that humility. You can just be, you know, like you can say, and it's totally factually correct and epistemically correct to be like, we don't know how dangerous this virus could become, or we don't know how potent that bomb can become. And we don't want to pursue that because the risk is too great for our other goals, which is the survival of humanity. So in that sense, I think it's you know, more rational, really, to say we don't know. Um, and we don't want to know, we don't want to take that risk. So it's not always just pursuing the truth above all else. But it's mm -hmm. more also than accepting, like, uh, calibrating, you know, your beliefs about that particular phenomenon. And saying you don't know is a perfectly reasonable, rational response to something. Um, what would be irrational would be for you to make some claim that the bomb isn't, is or isn't this dangerous, or that the virus is or isn't this dangerous based on a lack of information. Um, so yeah, that's why I stand on that. I certainly don't think we should have a relentless pursuit for truth over all else. But, um, but I do think we just have to be honest about where the current level of evidence stands. Okay, while we're on this, I want to get to the growth mindset and then a fixed mindset. But also, as you've steel manned what IQ is earlier, I want you to steel man the dangers of an open mind only because we're constantly talking about that we need more openness. And as someone who has been exploring and unjudiciously exploring theories of everything, let's say, I've been privy to the more heinous aspects of an open mind. And I mean that in a psychological sense. What I'm saying is that the case for the more ruinous aspects of an open mind are rarely made, at least by intellectuals, because they're constantly saying we need to have more of an open mind, more of an open mind. So I'm curious for you to steal man what it's like to have too much of an open mind. How do we know when we're too open? Um, interesting. I mean, given the examples that you gave, like that Lovecraft quote, it makes me think of, um, you know, Plato's idea of the people kind of in the cave looking at the shadows, then one of the prisoners escapes. He, you know, goes, he sees the fire, he sees what's beyond the fire, and, you know, he sees the beautiful reality. But it's like, how can he persuade 
the other prisoners that they want to see reality rather than sticking to what they know. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I think this is a question that we've had for millennia on kind of how far do we probe, like, um, how much can we, how can we deal with, like, a new kind of truth? Um, so I absolutely think that is an open question. Um, you know, I think the a great example, which I'm sure you've covered in this series, is, you know, what if we discovered that we didn't have free will? You know, what kinds of consequences would that have for kind of human behavior? And actually, there are scientific studies that have tried to manipulate people's beliefs in free will or um, a lack of free will. And, you know, it does have important consequences for things like our moral behavior, you know, our kind of self-discipline. Like, if we don't believe we have free will, we really struggle to kind of motivate ourselves to do anything because you just feel like, you know, what's the point? Your fate is already determined. Um, so, you know, I do think, like, we could come to a stage where we do come to some conclusion about kind of consciousness or the origins of the universe, where we, we have to wrestle with these um, these issues and we do have to know whether, you know, how close to the sun we're going to fly if we're like Icarus. Um, yeah, I don't really have an answer for that. I mean, my hunch at the moment is that we're so far away from that, that as a society, we should be trying to kind of pursue, you know, as much knowledge as we can, provided that it is, you know, with it um, kind of conducted in a safe way. So, you know, we don't want to kind of create that deadly virus um, unless we can be certain that. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. 
The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. While studying it, you know, it won't leak from a lab, you know, that kind of thing. Like we have to have all these kind of measures in place. We Even a small possibility of a disaster um, I don't think it's worth it because, you know, eventually you have enough of those kinds of near misses and one time is going to um, backfire and you could face a real catastrophe. So, you know, I think like that's why we have so many like regulations and rules in science and, you know, they don't always work perfectly and we should always be improving them. But I do think we need to kind of temper what we do and always make sure that it doesn't kind of bring about risks. Um, but in general, yeah, I don't think we're kind of close to that kind of um, that kind of issue. I, I think separately, there's a question of the individual, like, you know, can it be just too overwhelming for an individual who is like so relentlessly curious that they're almost overwhelmed by what they're discovering? And I think that's also something to bear in mind. You know, I think, you know, I think curiosity is something that brings so many benefits. And I write about that in the intelligence trap, you know, how like curiosity you know, it literally makes you smarter in that it makes you learn more quickly. It makes you more rational because you find it easier to balance kind of information that might be contradictory. You know, you're kind of looking for the, uh, you're you're willing to accept like um, evidence that challenges you, which is really important for being rational. So you're not suffering from confirmation bias. Um, so I had always thought that we should like cultivate curiosity. But I think if you get to a point where you're actually just struggling, there may be you know, you also have to slow down a bit or take your time, you know, manage like how you're dealing with that curiosity, making sure that you're not kind of pursuing too much um, too quickly at any one time. So I guess that's where I stand on that is that um, even though, you know, open-mindedness, curiosity, you know, they're great traits, we always have to kind of rein them in and make sure that like um, they're working to our advantage and that, you know, we're not going too quickly without thinking about the consequences, whether that's personal, whether that's for society. Can you talk about some of the benefits of curiosity? And then also, I'm going to ask you about how does one temper their curiosity if they're much like myself, where I feel like it's not producing positive effects always? Right. So curiosity, you know, is this kind of hunger for knowledge. And we know that, you know, neurologically speaking, when you feel curiosity, like some amazing things happen in the brain. So actually, triggers the release of dopamine, which we think of as being like, you know, a neurotransmitter associated with pleasure. And it might be why finding out new things is, you know, is fun. But actually, dopamine also strengthens um, the storage of memories, it kind of cements the memory for you. So it actually improves your long term memory of what you're learning. And then there's this kind of amazing kind of spillover, like halo effect. So if you're curious about something, you know, in a kind of physics class or, 
you know, when you're reading a book. Like it actually helps you to learn not just that one fact, but it actually strengthens your memories for all of the other facts that surround it. So, you know, in education, making sure that someone is curious and that they can pursue their curiosity is really beneficial. It can actually help to kind of, um, uh, you know, like erase or blur the differences that arise from differences in IQ and learning. If someone's really curious and really dedicated, you know, that's as good as having a higher IQ, essentially, even if their IQ is closer to average. So we know it's, it's important in learning and memory. And then we also know that curiosity can help to offset some of the um, kind of biases that can sometimes come with greater intelligence. So I mentioned earlier that people like Arthur Conan Doyle suffer from this thing called the my side bias and that is and motivated reasoning which is where you you're attached to a particular viewpoint and then you only search for the evidence that supports that viewpoint and you like use your intelligence to dismiss any arguments that might contradict your point of view um which can lead you down some kind of wormholes where you're believing something that you know most other people consider to be purely irrational and you know so leading you to pursue a goal that isn't actually helping you in the long run um now, what curiosity does is it actually protects you from that. And it's because the curiosity overrides that emotional kind of pull of your initial belief. So, you, you know, you might have an initial belief in, you know, something like the paranormal or climate change denialism or, you know, any of these beliefs um, that maybe don't tally with the scientific evidence. But if you're super... Um, curious and open-minded it's like then your love of new lo new knowledge will mean that you are willing to read that evidence that contradicts that point of view like you you're so hungry for knowledge and you're so desperate to actually get to the bottom of this kind of problem that you'll you know you'll read that report that kind of disproves your belief and then you'll you'll assimilate it into your knowledge um and that's really important then for coming up with a more well-rounded, less myopic kind of worldview. If you're constantly doing that, you're constantly kind of accepting, you know, information from lots of different sources and then forming a, a more rational worldview because of that. So, you know, for me, curiosity is, um, in general, for most people, is like a skill that we really should cherish and cultivate. Um, now, if it's kind of leading you you know, astray or leading you to pursue, to feel like a desperation to know so much, it's actually like um, becoming overwhelming. Um, I haven't really come across any research that tells you how to deal with that, but I just wonder if maybe there it's almost possible to kind of just focus your curiosity a bit, like pick maybe out of all of the things that are fascinating you, maybe, you know, like pick some to focus on in, at the present and maybe put some to one side um while thinking that you know you could certainly like pursue them in the future but just kind of making sure that you're more um yeah more focused more concentrated in kind of what you're pursuing i don't know if that you know speaks to you personally but that's how i would kind of deal with it it's like you might want to know kind of everything um yeah like you want to travel to every country in the world, but you have to create a list of priorities for like places to go first, and create that kind of itinerary of where you're going to go and like how you're going to get that. I'll tell you something personal. I don't think I've said this aloud to anyone outside of here. There's a sentence that drives me. I want to learn every theory that's ever been constructed. So I had that in me for a little while. And then I saw that Feynman on his board, Richard Feynman, on his blackboard before he died, 
It had some equations, but then scrawled in the corner, it said, learn to solve every problem that's ever been solved. And I was like, oh, that's <laughs> interesting. But that, yeah. that's more practical than for, I don't like to solve problems that are useful. I like to know theories. So I'm much more in the yeah. air. He was on the ground. I mean, that's a great example because I think like Feynman was, you know, like one of the most famously curious people that have has been written about. You know, you see it in his autobiography, you see it in other scientists' descriptions of his behavior. And, you know, Feynman had definitely had like his flaws. Like, um, But actually, I think in terms of his kind of academic pursuit of knowledge, that curiosity really did get him really, you know, like so far. And it was actually just like a kind of curiosity over the way plates were spinning in the cafeteria right. that eventually came up, allowed him to come up with his theory of, um, uh, what was it, quantum QED. electric? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That um, then won him the Nobel Prize. So he, you know, like it does show you what curiosity can achieve. But again, I think he, he was super curious, but I think he was kind of, he kept it in balance and he, was like knew kind of when to focus on one particular project and when to kind of allow his curiosity to kind of go elsewhere temporarily. So, you know, that was, I think he's a good model to follow in that kind of sense. As a writer, how many ideas for books do you have? Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm working on my third book now. But how many ideas do you have? Like on the back burner of, okay, project one, project two? Oh, I've got another couple of ideas kind of you know, they're very vague notes at the moment. Um, but I just can't say for certain whether I would ever pursue them because, yeah, like it's always good to have that kind of stuff on the back burner that's interesting you. But I think also like I have to be realistic in what I can achieve in the amount of time that I have. And also, you know, I don't know by the time I've, you know, between now and when I've finished my next book, someone else might have already written something great on one of those topics. And then I don't want to just kind of rehash what someone else is, is writing. So yeah, I have a few, I'd say maybe I've got, yeah, like the one I'm working on that's been commissioned and then another couple, maybe three that I'm kind of mulling, but I'm mulling over, but, um, you know, they may never come off and I might you know, in the meantime, I might just come up with another idea that just like really grabs my attention and I have to write. So yeah, that's how I work really, you know, having lots of ideas kind of in the background, like uh, that I'm mulling over kind of subconsciously and consciously, but they're not really making a definite decision until, you know, something really grabs my attention and kind of helps it all fall into place. And it makes me think actually, this is the one, this is what I want to pursue next. I'm super curious now. How is it that you come up with the ideas for your books? Is it that you're walking around and one idea strikes you? Does it develop over time generally? Or is it like the seed is planted at once? Are you trying to work something out in the book? Like you have an idea, you're not sure if it's true, so you're going to write about it and find out. Did you read some fact? And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Let me explore. How does it work? Well, yeah. I mean, so say with the intelligence trap. Um, you know, I had this fascination with intelligence, um, you know, that then kind of grew as I became a science journalist. And I kind of was seeing these people, you know, where their kind of academic credentials didn't seem to match kind of their behavior, you know, in other parts of their life or their expertise in one field didn't seem to translate to others. So, you know, like I had those examples, you know, as a writer who specialized in psychology, I'd kind of been keeping on top of the research for that. Um, but, you know, it's not like immediately, just as soon as I came across one piece of research, like it, it suddenly I thought that has to be a book. It was much more of a prolonged process where I kept on coming across 
new papers, keeping note of them. And then eventually it just kind of coalesced. And then I, I guess it is almost like, you know, the way clouds form in a way. It's like I felt like there was just around this nucle uh, nucleus, it was like suddenly this idea started to emerge and take shape. And then, you know, it, it got to the stage where I felt like, well, I can write a proposal for this book test out for myself whether there's the kind of correct narrative arc. And then, you know, once that was done, I was pretty certain that that was something, you know, I really wanted to devote like a couple of years to write. Um, and it was exactly the same with the expectation effect of my second book, which like, I've been looking into things like the placebo effect, you know, since I became a science journalist like more than 10 years ago. Um, and then there was a bit of a kind of personal inspiration, like an event in my life where I kind of experienced an expectation effect myself um but then again it was just like collecting papers and then suddenly like a few years later it just i noticed that actually there was you know already like a structure had kind of formed it just kind of occurred to me that you know these were how i it was like this was how i could arrange the chapters this was the story that i felt i could tell and then i looked into the research you know to check that it stood up and actually the more i researched the more it made sense. And, you know, like I was finding all these fascinating things that actually just added to this um, argument I, I wanted to make, you know, pieces of research I hadn't known about previously and like stuff I just found like totally fascinating. So yeah, that was how that emerged very similar to the first one. It's like a kind of, it coalesces, it takes shape. And then suddenly you think, yeah, this is a story that deserves to be a book rather than like a feature article in a magazine. And when is coalescing are you making notes in Google Docs or Notion, or is it written on a piece of paper? I know I'm getting in the weeds, but I'm I'm an in the weeds person. I'm a details person. Yeah, no, I mean, it's in a Word document. So, you know, I just have like Word documents that are like, you know, tens of pages long with like all kinds of ideas for like, mostly just for like, just noting down pieces of research that interest me and I'll kind of categorize it. Um, you know, and then I, I might plumb that when I want to come up with like a, an article to pitch to a magazine or if an editor comes to me and they say like could you write a piece about you know conspiracy theories or whatever and then I'll have like these notes that I can go back to that just kind of suggest to me kind of what you know what I can say that's new and interesting um see so yeah, it's very much like that and the books kind of just emerge from that kind of long list of papers it's you know not very organized um like it's kind of split into basic categories, but it's not like I'm being really strategic. I think that is a case of me allowing my curiosity just to kind of to flow and just like noting these things down just because I'm scared of like forgetting and losing them, essentially. How do you deal with this issue of, for myself, when I'm writing, and I'm writing books without a publisher, it's just treatises, it's better to say it like that, Mainly, my impetus is because I don't understand some subjects, so let me write about it. For instance, paradoxes. I'm writing a book on logical paradoxes or interpretations of quantum mechanics or theories of everything, like a compendium of different yeah. theories of everything, actually. Anyway, as soon as I make an opinion or state of fact, quote-unquote, I can find flaws with it, and there are people who have some alternate opinion. So then I research them. I'm like, that's actually fairly convincing. Okay, let me research what the opponent says. Oh, that's interesting. And it goes back and forth to the point where it's bottomless, at least for myself, and then I get to questions of what is and <laughs> who am I? The point is like, I, at least for myself, when trying to put my stake down as something extremely solid, I find that it's sand and I constantly am putting it in something else and investigating and seeing, okay, that's water. 
oh shoot, okay, this I, this I think is rock, no, it's mercury, and so on. How do you deal with that? How do you know when you're supposed to stop and just put your foot down and say, okay, this is as good as I can get it? Yeah, I mean, that is really tough, um, especially because science is constantly evolving. And, you know, there's always the fear that, like, you know, between having kind of signed off the proofs and the book being published, that some big new study will come, you know, that might kind of prove the thesis, but provide that kind of lynching evidence that you wish you could have included, or that will contradict some part right. of the book. And like, you know, I'm always aware of that. I think, and you know, even within the science, sometimes you get research that is contradictory, and that's just a healthy part of science. Um, you know, when I'm writing my books, I tr really try to kind of acknowledge the those kinds of nuances. Um, but I'm really trying to look at like, whether there's a, so, a, body, a body of evidence that kind of, from lots of different sources, you know, lots of different types of studies, it could be, you know, in medicine, like longitudinal studies, it could be laboratory studies, it could be like real world kind of um, interventions, you know, all of that, if you have enough of those, that all point in the same direction and are showing the same phenomenon, like with the expectation effect, you know, if you have all of these um, pieces of evidence showing that, kind of our expectations can shape our behavior, perception, and physiology um, in profound ways to create self-fulfilling prophecies, then that's what I feel I'm contributing. You know, I'm summarizing, synthesizing that body of literature. And I see it as, you know, it's a snapshot in time. Essentially, like, I have to accept that that book will be as correct as I can possibly make it at the time of publication. Uh, but I can never guarantee that there won't be other you know, call new studies that might support or contradict it in the future. And I have to kind of make peace with that fact that it's sure. a representation of my thinking. And as far as I could represent it, the state of the science at that time that I was writing the book. And I think that's how readers take it as well. Can you explain the different types of studies you've just outlined? Longitudinal studies, interventional studies, and what other types of studies are there? And what's like the difference between compare and contrast, if you don't mind? Right, sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, like, in psychology and medicine, you can have like a, you know, laboratory based study, which is normally in the short term. And you might have someone come in, you know, for psychology, say, where you're, you might test their mindset. So looking, this is for the expectation effect, like looking at their beliefs on, you know, a particular element of their health or their fitness or, um, you know, what they think about food. And then you might either you might then kind of give them some kind of test. So you might be measuring, you know, how the, what the hormonal response is to the foods that they're eating. And then you kind of look for a correlation between, you know, their beliefs and those physiological outcomes. So, you know, standard kind of laboratory test. You might also have a kind of intervention within the laboratory. So in that case, to kind of look at causality, you might rather than just measuring their mindsets, you might actually try to change their mindsets. So you might try to uh, change the way they view their own kind of health and ability to deal with exercise. And then you might measure how they perform on the treadmill. You know, see if if you tell them that they actually have um, good genes for doing exercise that's going to enhance their endurance. Do they then perform better in an, a test of endurance on the treadmill? And does that change things like their physiology, like the gas exchange within their lungs, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if you do find that those who'd had their um, mindsets changed, then also um, 
show differences in their physiology. Well, that's a suggestion of a... uh... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Um, of a causal effect, essentially. Um, so quite a good piece of evidence. But so the latter is a, an interventional study? Yeah, exactly. And the former was a... Uh, well, I guess a correlational study um, within the laboratory. But then you could also do these in kind of a real-life situation, and I think that would be much more convincing is if you could kind of um, get people to kind of change their mindsets over a period of a month, for example, and then you measure differences in their physiology. You know, do you see the predicted effects? You can also look at longitudinal studies, which are correlational, but uh, they have some advantages because they often track a lot of data from a lot of people over a long period of time. So you might track it over 10 years for 10,000 people, and you might have measured their beliefs about you know, their fitness or stress at one point, and then you might look at lots of different outcomes like their behavior, their BMI, their risk of death at a later time point. And you look for correlations there, and you try to, um, to uh, kind of control for the conflicting, confounding factors. Um, again, that, that doesn't necessarily prove causality, and there are issues with that. But I think if you have all these different types of studies, and they're all kind of showing the predicted effects, then like together, it's like, they're all, you know, they all support the argument. And I think that's why I'm really looking for that. Any one piece of evidence, I think you can, there's going to be some flaws in the way the study was conducted. But I think like, if you start to find you know, lots of lots of data all pointing in the same direction. That makes me much more confident that there's something solid there that you're you're observing and noting and that could be valuable in applying. What is the expectation effect? And what was the catalyst? You said there was a personal catalyst for the book. Yeah. So I mean the expectation effect is this idea that our mindsets, which are these kinds of collective beliefs that we hold, can create self-fulfilling prophecies and that they can do so through changes to perception changes to behavior and changes to physiology. So actually altering things like the hormonal response in your body or, you know, your blood pressure, the actions of the gut, um, your bodily movements when you're um, 
when you're exercising, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, and, and, you know, like in the book, I kind of look at the ways that this can, our mindsets can influence everything from, you know, the effects of a particular drug um, in a hospital to the um, outcomes of exercise, like how you experience the exercise, how your body responds to the exercise, whether it, you know, it's efficient or inefficient in kind of um, performing a particular activity, um, how we respond to food, how we respond to a new diet, how we respond to sleep loss, even how long we live. So I really looked at, you know, kind of, I think all of the kind of key areas of our life that we might be trying to improve with changes in lifestyle. And I'm basically showing that changes in mindset are not alone going to be this kind of secret panacea that's going to kind of create miracles. You know, I'm not claiming that it can that you can change your life just by changing your beliefs. But often the beliefs are an important component and they can kind of take the brakes off of our progress so that when you are making all of those other beneficial changes to your kind of exercise regime or your diet or your sleep, that actually like making sure you're doing so with the right mindsets can actually make it a lot more effective and it can, you know, kind of bring about all of these positive outcomes. Um, can you give an example before you move on to the personal one? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I kind of hinted at this earlier, you know, uh, researchers at Stanford kind of um, wanted to see how people's beliefs about their own fitness would shape how they responded to endurance exercise. Um, so they gave people a real uh, genetic test. It looked at the CROB1 gene, which is associated with um, kind of uh, cardiovascular fitness, you know, and endurance. If you have the kind of good version of the gene, like you find it a bit easier or more comfortable to do exercise, things like your kind of internal body temperature just stays in the kind of comfortable range a bit longer. It's a good gene. You know, like, um, yeah, exactly. It's great great to have if you have it. I'm a glut. And that's like my vice is I just, I can go to buffets and just eat and eat meat. So that's, I, I hope I have that gene. Or if I don't, I, I hope CRISPR is making some progress because I would like to engineer that into me. Well, here's the thing that you should remember then, um, because so they did the real genetic test, but they gave people false feedback. So they told some people you have the good gene, good, good version of the gene. Some people were told they had the bad version of the gene. And then they did their kind of endurance exercise. And what the researchers found was that, yeah, like the gene does have an effect, but so did people's expectations of uh, whether they had the gene. So this this feedback was sham feedback. So some who had the good version were told they had the bad version, vice versa. And actually those expectations independently affected how people did the exercise. Um, and, you know, in some cases, according to some of the physiological measures, the expectations were actually more important than the effects of the gene itself. So when they were looking at like the efficiency of the lungs, well, that depended more on the expectations that you had the good gene than whether you actually had the good gene. That's and interesting. to speak to your um, experience of being like a... Rapacious fool. Yeah, they did exactly the same experiment, looking at people's, um, a gene that was associated with um, satiety. So whether people feel they need to eat more to be full. Um, and again, they found that actually those expectations did shape how much people ate, um, but also shaped like the response of the... Uh, the gut, the hormonal response. There was one particular hormone that's linked to satiety that was very closely linked to the expectations of whether they would be full or not thanks to this gene. So, you know, again, it's like, it's like I said, just in the answer to your previous question, 
like I'm not claiming that like our genes don't matter because they did have an effect too. But what you can what you can see here is that actually even if you have the bad gene, you don't have to see it as being deterministic in some way. Like you can accept that actually your expectations are also playing a role. And then you can look for ways to kind of change those expectations. And then that can be beneficial to you. And now the personal bit. Yeah. So, I mean, this was, you know, I think we all know what the placebo effect is. It's where you kind of take a sham drug, like a sugar pill, and then you you're told that it's the real thing and then, you know, you experience kind of pain relief or, um, you know, change in blood pressure due purely to your beliefs. And that's quite well established. Um, but there's this other phenomenon called the nocebo effect, um, which is like the placebo effect's evil twin. Um, if you expect to become ill, then those beliefs can actually create symptoms of sickness. So they can do things like amplify um, the transmission of pain signals. So something that would be like a small irritation suddenly becomes agonizing. Um, they can actually change things like the vasculature of the brain. So they can create a migraine and it's actually, you know, taking form in your brain. It's actually changing the way your brain is responding. Um, and I experienced that. And, you know, the nocebo effect has been really widely studied in people's side effects to particular drugs. So if you're told you might experience a headache after taking a pill. People are much more likely to experience that headache. Even if they're taking a placebo pill and they're told that it might cause a headache, they get the headache. Um, and I, I'd been going through a period of depression in my life, um, and I was taking these like very standard antidepressant pills. And my doctor, you know, as she was obliged to do, she told me that I might experience, you know, headaches as a result of taking the pills. And I did, and they were super painful like I really found it difficult to focus at work um you know I, I say it was like and it did feel like such a sharp pain like you know an ice pick was kind of going through the skull or something um so pretty nasty but at the time I was also kind of you know just by chance looking into the placebo effect and I came across this research on the nocebo effect and actually that knowledge of the nocebo effect and I, I checked the data for the drug itself and I saw that actually a lot of the side effects that people were reporting were influenced by a nocebo effect. Um, that knowledge actually then helped to relieve the pain. It just kind of, I just questioned like, well, is it inevitable that I'm experiencing this pain? It certainly felt like it was, you know, direct kind of um, physiological response to the drug. But, you know, it just made me think, well, maybe it's just my expectations. And actually, yeah, just opening my mind up to that possibility kind of it led me not to catastrophize the pain and not to feel so anxious about the pain. And that in turn then stopped me feeling the pain itself. And so, you know, after a day or so, I actually just didn't have any of the headaches at all. And I continued my treatment and it, you know, it worked remarkably well. And if I hadn't known that, I would have probably given up that treatment. It would have been a waste of like, you know, a perfectly good um, line of treatment that actually proved successful. So that experience really told me that like expectation effects are real that you know it's not made up it's not imagined because that pain to me was just as real as when i'd ever had a, a migraine in the past and we know that it's related to physiological changes in the brain and so i just started thinking well like how else could our expectations shape our experience like what else is it doing to us and how could we use this knowledge to our advantage and so that's when i collected all of those papers 
you know, years later, I realized that I had enough and it took the shape of a book that I really wanted to write. So, so many questions I have, man. Let me prioritize. Right. How do you know if what you experienced was the nocebo effect or you just had the actual effect and what you learned afterwards was a positive placebo effect that neutralized the effect? I mean, that is a possibility, I suppose. Um, I mean, in this case, I think it's unlikely because I'd actually, when I was looking into these, um, you know, my particular brand of antidepressant pills, um, you know, like the vast majority of people experiencing headaches um, were experiencing it because of the expectation. The difference between those in the placebo arm of the clinical trials of this drug and the people actually taking the drug was, you know, tiny. Um, I'm not even sure if it was clinically, you know, like um, not clinically significant, statistically significant. So it really was very likely that I was experiencing a nocebo effect. This podcast is a part of a series that's extremely practical. So we're going to talk about steps that people can take to utilize the expectation effect in their life. And then also later on, we're going to talk about learning because in particular learning, extremely confounding graduate level math and physics, because many people on this channel want to know how can I utilize some of the lessons from the intelligence trap and or the expectation effect to accelerate my learning. In this case, new knowledge nullified the nocebo effect. Now, how does one have new knowledge that gives a placebo effect? Because I can imagine if someone was to tell you, by the way, the positive effects you're feeling, that's just in your head that may reduce it rather than amplify it? How do you consciously employ some strategy to utilize the placebo effect? Yeah, and I mean, this has been the big dilemma that had like really put a barrier on kind of placebo research for decades. Um, but actually there's lots of exciting new research that kind of helps us to get over that. And basically all of this research shows that you don't need um, deception to take advantage of expectation effects. Now, one of the kind of studies I like most looks at, um, they're called open-label placebos. They're like non-deceptive placebos. So there was a study from Portugal where the researchers um, took people with chronic back pain and, you know, they'd been struggling, the patients had been struggling this, with this for a while. Um, and they actually gave them a, a jar of placebo pills that clearly said placebo pills take two a day. Like the pills were kind of bright orange, you know, quite striking, but they knew that they weren't, didn't contain an active ingredient. But the researchers also gave the participants a kind of uh, presentation about the, the placebo effect, but all of this evidence showing that actually good expectations can help to relieve pain, that sometimes the brain itself can create its own endogenous opioids that kind of has its inner pharmacy that it can tap that will help to produce its own painkillers. Um, they learned all of these things and then they were told, like, you don't have to kind of take our word for it. Like, you don't have to, you know, convince yourself that this is true, like artificially kind of lie to yourself or repeat a mantra, like just kind of, you know, listen to the evidence and, you know, process it as you want. But you do have to then take the pills, like the ritual of taking the pills is really important. So take one in the morning, one in the evening, like do that for the next um, week. And what the researchers found was that actually, you know, the ritual of the pills combined with that information that they'd been given, that kind of empowering information about the mind-body connection, that that alone was enough to produce a clinically significant decrease 
in their um, pain symptoms that they were feeling. So it reduced it by, I think it's 29%, which is the kind of threshold for, you know, if you're trying to approve a new drug for pain relief. Um, and, you know, then they, the kind of participants went away, the trial was ended, it was written up. For five years later, the researchers kind of visited these same participants and found that even five years later, they were still like managing and coping better than the participants who hadn't received the placebo pills. Those had just continued their um, treatment as usual. So that really suggested that actually knowing about the expectation effect, knowing about these benefits can in itself empower you and kind of can create the expectation of pain relief in this case that actually then produces the benefits that you want without any deception. That's now been replicated a few different times for different illnesses. Um, and we know that there are other kind of tactics too. So actually you can do away with the kind of sham treatment altogether in some cases and just give people a kind of psychological therapy that just helps to them to form optimistic but realistic ex expectations of the recovery from surgery, for example. So you, you kind of give them information that um, allays their worries about the effects of the surgery and helps them to plan out this kind of recovery that they would like to see, gets them to feel excited about all of the kind of new activities they'll be able to do when they when they feel better. And then that psychological therapy alone can produce some of the benefits that you would want to see. Um, they leave hospital more quickly, uh, they return to work more quickly, and they also show differences in signs of kind of inflammation within the body. Um, the lower the inflammation, the kind of quicker the biological recovery. And so that's just two ways that you can kind of apply the principle of the placebo effect, but without being deceptive. And then, you know, in other areas of life, I kind of explain how you can apply the same kinds of principles to things like, um, you know, managing sleep loss or kind of boosting your experience of exercise. You don't have to fool yourself into thinking that you um, have those good genes for exercise, for example, to actually benefit from that kind of uh, expectation effect is actually just enough for you to start reappraising the things that you're associated with exercise and kind of changing your assumptions, kind of just being very objective about it, really. Um, so yeah, there, it's lots. Uh, that's what's so exciting to me is that actually, you know, we don't have to be this kind of self-delusional Pollyanna who's kind of always kind of fooling themselves into thinking things are better than they are. It's all just about kind of having this knowledge of what the brain can do. And then trying to think of like clever ways of applying that and of kind of forming or reappraising your old assumptions and, and kind of forming new expectations that, that can be beneficial and optimum to you. What can one do specifically to upraise their level of sleep? So that's something I need, even sleep quality, let alone the hours. And also, like I mentioned, this is going to be a part of a series on learning extremely difficult mathematics and physics. So what can someone who's watching this do to increase their rate of learning? utilizing the expectation effect. Yeah, sure. So um, to take um, sleep first, uh, you know, like a lot of a lot of sleep loss comes from a kind of fear of not getting enough sleep. Um, so, you know, like we know, like it's well accepted amongst um, kind of cognitive behavioral therapists who help people with insomnia that we can develop all of these kind of really damaging beliefs about the sleep that we're getting. So if you've had sleep loss in the past, then that kind of creates an anxiety about not being able to get to sleep in the future. And those anxieties put you in a state of high arousal so that you 
um, find it much harder to get to sleep because your your brain is on full alert. Um, now, one way around that, counterintuitively, is that actually if you try to stay awake, is a kind of ironic, interesting therapy. You try to stay awake, your you know studies suggest that you're more likely to fall asleep. So I don't think that's a case of like just you know staying up partying and like expecting it to come kind of miraculously but you know when you're lying in bed and if you feel like you're desperate to fall asleep actually don't like try to think of something that's going to stay keep you awake and you'll probably find then you're kind of drowsing and falling off naturally um so that's one strategy um mindfulness is a good way if you can learn mindfulness and you can apply it well that can be another good way of just kind of avoiding those kind of fretful thoughts as you fall asleep and it's almost like having that non-judgmental um awareness of what you're thinking so you stop catastrophizing like if you've got all that stuff going around in your head like you kind of notice it and let it go without judging yourself for it um that can be beneficial um but equally important i think is looking at our expectations of what the sleep loss is going to do to the day ahead so if you're struggling to get sleep or maybe you've been asleep and you wake up like it always happens to me you wake up at like two o'clock in the morning um you can immediately start thinking well like if i don't get to sleep now then tomorrow i'm going to be wrecked i'm going to be irritable i'm not going to be able to meet my deadline you know all of those things um actually just stop thinking about those effects and the reason that you can do that is that the research shows that actually it's those expectations that create the symptoms of sleep loss the next day so there have been lots of research longitudinal studies like i mentioned also laboratory intervention studies that gave people false feedback about their sleep quality they all suggest that if you expect to suffer because of your sleep loss you're more likely to suffer the next day from your sleep loss so you tell someone that they've had hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with shopify shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets shopify supports you at every point of sale both online and in person they streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout making it 36 percent more effective than other leading platforms there's also something called shopify magic your ai powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Really, you get them in the lab, attach electrodes to them, let them kind of sleep, and then tell them the next day that they have actually, that they had a terrible night's sleep, according to the electrical recordings. That expectation will then cause them the next day to feel more fatigued, to struggle to concentrate, to to be more irritable that's extremely interesting 
because there's obviously the news, which outputs dangerous messages. When I say dangerous, I mean messages of danger. And part of it is they want to inform people, like part of it's deleterious. They're trying to get views. But let's say optimistically, they're trying to inform. But by doing so, they may create conditions that make the danger worse. And then Michael Walker of the sleep books. Uh, Matt Walker. Matt Walker of what? What's his book called? Um, Why We Sleep. Yeah. Okay. So Matt Walker, he talks about the detrimental effects of sleep loss. And partly that, I think since I started caring about my sleep, I started to have sleep issues. I had an aura ring. I don't, I no longer use the aura ring because I found myself being fanatic about checking my stats and then worrying when they weren't optimal. So that's interesting because you want to inform, but at the same time, informing may do more harm than good. How does one navigate around that? Hmm. I mean, it's interesting you say that about uh, Matt Walker's book. You know, I'm a big fan actually, but um, you know, I have read like blogs by kind of sleep scientists who've, you know, said that they're actually worried that like it's created a lot of anxiety about sleep that then is leading more people to come to sleep clinics with sleep problems and that the anxiety is kind of exacerbating their issues. Now, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier. It's like, you know, should we give information to people? Like, we want to be informed, but should we be giving information that's actually going to harm people's um, quality of life? And I think we should. I think we need to know, you know, the truth about kind of the importance of sleep because, you know, you might be suffering from the kinds of sleep problems that we've spoken about that are fueled by anxiety. But, you know, there's also lots of people who just aren't giving themselves enough time to get to sleep. And then, you know, you want those people to be able to make a better informed decision of, of kind of their lifestyle. Um, but I think the message can be presented in such a way that it doesn't kind of catastrophize the effects of a loss of sleep. And I think maybe what's been lost in some of this messaging is that, you know, the occasional sleep loss that you might get doesn't have to be a catastrophe for you. So, you know, if you wake up um, in the middle of the night for half an hour, that doesn't mean that you're going to struggle the next day. But look, but we can develop this belief that it will do. So any slight disturbance becomes like a, a serious worry for us. Um, so I think we need to acknowledge that. We need to kind of put things in proportion. Um, then we can also look at things like um, that have been proven to work. So you know, I think like hopefully just by understanding a bit about this expectation effect, you know, people who've read that chapter, I've heard that it has kind of immediately helped them with their sleep. And I was like, super pleased about that. But if people are having these kind of continuing problems with their sleep, you know, they're really struggling to get, um, to get enough each night and it's becoming something that's really damaging their lifestyle. Well, then they can go to a specialized sleep therapist who won't put them on sleeping pills, which, you know, the efficacy of sleeping pills is, you know, questionable, but instead they will help them to change those beliefs in a more kind of organized program. So through cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness-based therapy, they'll help them to deal with those kind of beliefs that are keeping them awake at night and then causing them this distress the next day. And those, and that therapy, working through practical problems, talking about the science and the evidence and, you know, giving them that knowledge, that can be really beneficial for curing insomnia too. So I would say if you have this kind of um, prolonged problem, you know, do get help. But it doesn't have to be a pharmaceutical solution. Like there are other psychological means of dealing with sleep loss that can take advantage of the expectation effect. 
much of this has so far been about ameliorating what is a medical issue. What about if we have no issue and we want to accelerate in a certain area? For instance, learning arcane math, physics, computer science, philosophy. How does one utilize some of these techniques? Does one take a pill in the morning? Can they self-assign the pill? Does one inject? Uh, Is injecting better? Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, I wish I really kicked myself that I didn't know about all of this science before I did my own degree in mathematics because, you know, it's a tough degree. Um, I, you know, I, I did fine, but like, I think I could have done better if I'd known all that I know now about the psychology of learning. Um, and I think one of the lessons that really, really chimes with me and also, you know, it's relevant, whatever job you do, but especially with learning is to reappraise the effects of frustration. Um, and I think this gets to the kind of heart of like how we can use the expectation effect more generally. Um, so for example, if you're exercising, you're working out, you feel aches in your muscles, you feel out of breath, you can assume that those uh, symptoms are kind of a sign of your lack of fitness and you can kind of catastrophize them and that you think like you start telling yourself you have this negative internal monologue that's like, I'm a failure, I'm struggling, I'm really unfit, I'm not going to manage to like to get through this workout. And you know, the research on the expectation of it shows that actually just changing the way the meaning you assign to those feelings can change your performance. So if you see, rather than like those being as, uh, those symptoms as being like, um, you know, detrimental, negative signs of failure, if you actually just see it as you're pushing your body to its limits and building strength, that's actually really beneficial and it helps you to enjoy the exercise more, it creates the endorphin rush you know, it can really build up your stamina uh, just by changing that mindset. And I think exactly the same thing happens in learning. And there are studies that show this. So if you're learning arcane maths, like it's really inevitable, unless you are some kind of like incredible genius, that you're going to feel frustrated sometimes. You're going to not be able to solve that problem, that the concepts aren't going to stick, that you there's going to be some kind of gap in your knowledge that you're really struggling to overcome that kind of gap in understanding. What the the research shows is that you can appraise that frustration as in the same way that someone who's struggling at the gym appraises the muscle aches. You can see it as a sign of failure, as a kind of sign that you're not smart enough, that you're not intelligent enough, that you that you're not learning, that you're not progressing. Uh, you can just see it purely detrimentally. Or you can accept, and this is also totally rational and actually true, we, it, you can accept the fact that um, frustration is just an inevitable and important part of learning. In the same way that you're pushing the body when you're working out, you're pushing your brain to build new connections, to grapple with really complex, difficult ideas. And if you weren't feeling frustrated, you wouldn't be stretching yourself. You wouldn't be building your knowledge. And what the research shows is that when you come to accept and even embrace the frustration and you recognize that it's crucial for learning, that that actually helps you to learn better. Uh, it helps your determination and perseverance, but it actually almost like frees up part of your mind because you're no longer feeling all of that kind of anxiety. It's not going through your head, taking up your mental resources. You're just accepting it and then getting on with the problem. And that, that you know, lesson by lesson, like kind of class by class, you know, problem by problem, mm -hmm. 
that's going to help you with your progress. And that's definitely something that I noticed in my own degree. I just didn't know the science behind it. It was almost once I relaxed into problems and just could kind of sit with them without panicking when I didn't get it immediately. But that actually just was incredibly important for me to be able to progress a lot more quickly. And it's exactly the same when I'm writing journalism now or writing my books. You know, sometimes structuring like a chapter is really frustrating because you just don't see how you can fit the pieces together in the right way. And you have to have that kind of structure, like you're playing almost like a jigsaw in your mind, like trying to see the most elegant, most comprehensible, most enticing way for a subject. And the more I just relax into that frustration and accept that it's just, you know, a creative block is kind of part of being creative. If you weren't experiencing that, it would just be a kind of administrative task. Whereas actually the frustration is the creativity. Recognizing that actually helps with my job today too. So I think it's something that can be applied in all kinds of areas. But absolutely with maps, I think the thing that holds so many people back is that they get in this kind of panic. Um, and actually just relaxing into that and accepting it and even embracing it is so powerful. What else would you do differently as an undergrad? Um, I think going back to create, uh, to curiosity that we'd mentioned um, yeah. and the benefits of curiosity for reading. I think with sometimes with a subject like maths or physics, you know, it's very abstract and it can be quite difficult for you to kind of attach it to something really meaningful in your life. Um, you might automatically have this kind of fascination with, I don't know, like number theory or whatever. But um, but for me, I was always more interested in the applied maths and the pure maths um, felt like a kind of needless distraction. So I, I was really dedicated in trying to learn it, but it never felt... Pure maths felt like a distraction. Yeah, exactly. Compared to the applied maths, which is like what I was really interested in. And I had no option, like I had to learn it. Um, you know, and I think I put in a lot of effort and I did fine. Like, you know, it's not like I failed that class or anything. But um, but knowing what I know about curiosity now, I think actually I should have tried really, rather than just putting kind of working like a workhorse, just kind of putting in the hours, I should have thought a bit more creatively about how to cultivate curiosity and what I was learning. And something really simple, I think, like learning about the lives of the mathematicians behind these kind of theories that I was learning. That, you know, I was never going to be tested on any of that biographical information. But I know from the science of curiosity that that could have been enough to kind of spark an interest that would have then had this spillover effect and made the whole process of learning much more meaningful for me. Because I'm a really like people-centered person. You know, like I love hearing not just about big ideas, about the kind of story behind the ideas, which is what I bring to my journalism. But I think I could have brought that to my degree. And actually that kind of, that, you know, enticing myself into a subject could have been so beneficial. Have you read the biography of Da Vinci by Walter Isaacson? I have, yeah. There's no one that you, I think there's no one in history that could be described as being as curious as he was, but yeah. Yeah, and in the book, Walter says, in the beginning that he has described Steve Jobs as a genius and Einstein as a genius and so-and-so as a genius, but he said he was careful to not call da Vinci a genius because he feels like virtually everything da Vinci had done could be cultivated in other people. It was just about being immensely curious. Like he would paint on the wall a line 
and then get him and his friend to guess what is the length of that line. In one of the notes he scrawled, what is the function of the tongue of a hummingbird or, or a woodpecker, something like that. And it turns out, then it's like, what, what the heck? Why would anyone think of that firstly? And then does a bird beat its wings down faster than it brings it up? That's a question you just, you don't even think to ask. And he would ask them and it turns out they had extremely interesting answers. There was something different about the woodpecker's tongue. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I guess I would disagree with um, uh, with him there. And I think like that is a, a that it was that curiosity that was behind um, Da Vinci's genius, you know. So, and it was exceptional. And I agree that other people could cultivate that curiosity potentially. But then, I think also people could cultivate the traits that made Steve Jobs. I guess that's what I feel about genius is that we, especially having written The Expectation Effect, is that we see it as being something that's kind of God-given. But actually, you can break it down. And there's, I mean, there's so many traits that contribute to genius. It's not like there's one secret. But I think they are all uh, kind of can be cultivated. And and then, you know, sometimes just for someone to be recognized as a genius, there's also kind of good luck. Like, you know, you have to be in the right place at the right time to make your amazing discovery. Like Feynman, if he hadn't been watching those spinning plates and hadn't come up with that particular idea at that particular time, maybe he wouldn't have won his Nobel Prize. You know, so I think genius is a very messy topic. And I, But I think, you know, Da Vinci, yeah, we can learn a lot from him, but we can learn a lot from all of these other people too. I agree with all of what you said, minus the luck part. But it's not that I disagree about the luck. It's more about that if we follow the logic of the luck, it's not... So you could say, well, 50% of their success was luck. Well, if you follow the logic that got you to that to that 50%, you could drag that all the way to 99.999999 because you could just end up with the logic of Dr. Manhattan, I think his name was from The Watchman, who said, yeah, but for even you to be here, every atom needed to coalesce with this atom and this uh, organism needed to not die and so on. And so the chances of you being here are so astronomically zero. So you could follow that line to say, essentially, every single aspect of you is luck. And there's almost zero free will, if free will even exists at all. And then that has its own downsides. That's why I have issues with any arguments about luck. Like, I, there's obviously positive about luck, because you don't want to say every single thing in a person is due to their own merits or that they're flawed in some way. Like, that's horrible. But then, logically speaking, any argument for an incorporation of even 10% luck can be pushed to 99.99999999% luck. How do you deal with that? I guess I kind of do you know, see your point and I kind of agree with it. And, you know, I like to think that, say, someone like Feynman, you know, if he hadn't been in that canteen at that time, he would have come up with the discovery some other way. And because I think it was his combination of, you know, intelligence and curiosity and open-mindedness and dedication, you know, grit, all of these things the men that he created his own luck in that he took that opportunity and ran with it. But if he hadn't had that opportunity, there might have been another one that he would have had instead that would have also led to some amazing discovery. So, you know, I do think, you know, it still is within uh, within our control and you can, you can maximise your chances. You might not be able... There's no foolproof way to become a genius or to be recognised as a genius, but you can absolutely maximise your chances of that by cultivating those kinds of traits. 
So one way that it can be conceptualized is like, yes, there is a lottery, but every time you persevere, it's like you're playing that lottery again and again and again. So yeah. and is that one way of, or is that incorrect? Like, what? Yeah, no, that's it. You have, yeah, you have to be in it to win it essentially. And you can, you can be smart about the kind of way that you play, you know, the cards that you've been given in life essentially. And I think like we mustn't neglect like all of the structural factors that mean it's much harder for people of like certain backgrounds to succeed where others might find it much easier. So I'm not definitely not discounting the fact that like there are structural barriers that we need to remove to give people uh, equal opportunities or more equal opportunities. But, you know, given those circumstances being the way they are, there are still things that we can do that will maximize our chances, that will kind of give us a bit more luck in that lottery of life. David, what is evidence-based wisdom? Um, so this is kind of trying to apply the same intellectual rigor that we had with the study of intelligence to the study of wisdom. Um, obviously, wisdom has been, you know, spoken about a lot in philosophy, but in science, people had really, you know, ignored it, ignored the question, like avoided the question of what makes someone wise. Can we measure it? And then this researcher called Igor Grossman. Um, really attempted to tackle this huge problem. And he looked at all of the philosophical definitions of wisdom and he distilled them to uh, six different uh, metacognitive uh, kind of tendencies that we might have. And, you know, to name a few of them, it's things like intellectual wisdom, um, intellectual humility. Essentially, you know, people since Socrates had argued that to be wise, you have to have a very uh, definite knowledge of the limits of your of your capabilities and to accept when you don't know something. Um, it's the ability to reach a compromise, the ability to look for other people's perspectives. So you're not just kind of myopically focused on your particular viewpoint, but you're you're looking for other people's too. So he, you know, gathered these together and then he started designing tests that would measure them. Some of these tests were uh, quite involved, but it would involve um, people looking at a kind of article that might be from a Dear Abby column, I think, like an Agony Aunt column outlining a problem, or it could be an article about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And he would ask people to talk out loud about what they thought of these issues, how the situations might be resolved potentially, you know, really to kind of talk through uh, they're thinking on these complex situations. And then psychologists would rate how they performed on all of those different elements of wisdom, like intellectual humility. Did these people actually acknowledge that they didn't have all the information they needed to hand? And did they outline what they would like to know before coming to a conclusion? That kind of thing. Uh, what he found was that those, uh, that those measures actually correlate really well with important outcomes in life. And when it comes to things like uh, people's emotional well-being, uh, their health, you know, all of these really important things, their state of their relationships, the measures of wisdom actually came out as being more important than uh, independent measures of IQ that had also taken. So it, it really proved that wisdom is something that can be measured scientifically. And then Igor looked at ways to cultivate wisdom to make people wiser. And one example of that, which I loved, is this uh, uh, phenomenon called self-distancing. 
And that is essentially just getting yourself to look at a particular situation from an outside perspective. If you're American and you are reasoning about the forthcoming elections, for example, rather than just talk, talking about the situation from your own perspective, you might consider how someone from Iceland or Australia might view the situation. Um, if you're talking about a personal problem, you might imagine instead that you were advising a friend with a similar problem. Mm. And what he found was that this actually improves people's scores and wise reasoning. It actually helps them to reason in a more sophisticated way about the issues at hand. And the reason is that it stops us from feeling so attached emotionally to the particular problem and to our pre-existing viewpoint. So it helps us to question our assumptions, to look at those different perspectives that we might not consider if we feel totally immersed in the situation at hand. If we are reasoning from the position of an American talking about the US elections, or if we're reasoning as ourselves about the dissolution of our marriage, he, he found that it could be very powerful in helping people to be more objective, more rational, wiser about the situations that they were describing. And it's something that we can all do in our lives is, is to just apply this very simple technique. Did he come up with a number akin to IQ before wisdom, like your WQ? No, so, you know, he didn't come up with a kind of wisdom quotient. Um, but, you know, it was in a way like the IQ, the intelligence quotient is a great way of, you know, you'd look, there's a comparison, always a comparison with the average. Um, so maybe that's something he would consider in the future. But I think more importantly, he's really looking up. Anyone could measure their baseline uh, kind of wise reasoning score according to his different tests, and then they could try to see an improvement in that score. So you could at least look at your own personal trajectory, even if you're not trying to compare across a population. The beauty of the IQ test is that it's difficult to fake. You can practice IQ tests and you can score higher, but with a survey, I imagine, with a survey like the wisdom test that says, hey, do you take other people's viewpoints into account? You could imagine, oh, I think it's more socially acceptable and wise, so I'm going to say, yes, I do, five out of five. You could imagine that you can falsify that information. So is there a way of constructing a wisdom test that takes into account that people may not say what is accurate about themselves? Yeah, I mean, so I think some of Igor's tests are questionnaires in the way that you described, so self-reported. I mean, they're surprisingly, people are quite honest in self-reported questionnaires. We know that from personality questionnaires, for example, that people people's responses often do correspond to what their friends would say about them. So they're not always lying, although there might be a slight bias towards a more positive, you know, attribute. Um, but actually, in a lot of these tests, you know, they were having to prove that they were capable of doing that. So if they were reasoning about the US elections, they would actually have to take someone else's perspective and they would actually have to they would have to show that kind of integration of what a Democrat would think compared to a Republican and to balance them and to kind of draw connections between the two and to look for the ways that there might be a compromise on a particular political opinion or particular political problem. Um so they were actually having showing that having to show that they did that. It wasn't just them saying, Oh yeah, I'm I'm brilliant at this. Um so yeah, I think he's he's considered that, and it does it does seem that people's self-reported responses correspond with their actual abilities to do that, and also that even when you do things like the self-distancing exercise, that that's having a real impact 
on what they're doing, how they're going about their reasoning. What are the rationality coefficients? So that was that is research where someone has tried to look at a more direct comparison to the uh, in intelligence uh, quotient. Um, that's work by Keith Stanovich, um, who's another Canadian researcher, you know, brilliant mind, who's really taken the work of people like Daniel Kahneman, all of these uh, cognitive biases that we know that exist, like the some cost fallacy that we mentioned earlier, things like um, temporal discounting, which is whether you are able to overlook a more immediate reward for something, a bigger reward later on, that kind of thing, you know, how, how you fall on that kind of spectrum of potential responses for, uh, you know, when you're willing to kind of have a cut up, all of that kind of um, literature on decision making, he's really looked at very carefully. And uh, he's shown that there are reliable individual differences between people that can be measured with tests, uh, which is something that Daniel Kahneman hadn't looked at the differences between people. He'd just shown a kind of general average tendency, whereas Keith Stanovich was really looking at are some people consistently more susceptible to bias than other people. And he found that that, that is true. Some people do tend to suffer from all kinds of biases, whereas others are more resilient against biases. And then he compared that to their IQ scores, their SAT scores, and the US education system. In all of these cases, he found that there was a correlation with measures of intelligence, but that intelligence alone didn't describe people's rationality. So what I mean by that is you could still have someone who is highly intelligent, but who scored very low on the rationality mm -hmm. quotient and vice versa. Did he say what the correlation was? It really depended on what kind of test they were using, and also it did depend on what kind of bias they were looking at. The sunk cost fallacy, um, I believe, or temporal discounting, I believe the correlation was almost zero. You know, like, surprisingly, like people really weren't more rational in those kinds of situations um, that they were measuring. Um, if they were more intelligent, it just didn't seem to make a difference. There were other elements of his rationality equation that did depend more on intelligence. And that tended to be the things that I think would be covered in academic education. So how he also looked at things like how you would um, read statistics, like whether people are able to understand like absolute risk, relative risk, um, all of that kind of statistical reasoning. And as you might expect, if you're you have a higher SAT score, you probably were paying more attention in your maths classes, and so you are better able, when asked, to actually um, calculate those different risks. Those are really important elements of rationality, and actually they can be taught, which is positive. So, But yeah, it's not like intelligence was completely unrelated to all elements of rationality, but certainly for some, some areas where you would expect that a smarter person would just automatically make the more rational decision. He didn't find that at all. So he does, he says it supports this idea that, you know, smart people can make terribly irrational decisions. And he calls that phenomenon dysrationalia, which he compares to dyslexia. Um, so dyslexia is that you might have a high IQ person who has a particular problem with literacy and with reading in particular, and similarly with dysrationalia. You might have someone with a high IQ who's just really irrational. They just really struggle to come up with, to read data rationally and logically and to weigh up evidence and to come up with a, a conclusion based on that data. So he 
yeah, he considers this to be a kind of societal problem that then needs to be targeted with like interventions that help to cultivate rationality. So Stanovich's terminology is he calls it the quotient, so it's not coefficients. No, it's the rationale. Well, that's the informal name is the rationality quotient. But yeah, his book was called the rationality quotient. So he's definitely promoting this idea, like the intelligence quotient. Yeah, I see. And there wasn't just one. There were several types of rationality quotients, or there was just one, like right RQ, and that's it. Not RQ underscore one. RQ. Yeah, no, exactly. So basically, a bit like with IQ tests, actually, you break it into kind of um, subtests. So you. You know, in IQ, you might have like the verbal subtest, the nonverbal reasoning subtest, you know, um, lots of different types of uh, of different problems that it's measuring. And there's a correlation between all of them, but actually the correlation between one and another might vary. So, you know, there's a kind of central factor, we say, uh, which is someone's kind of general intelligence. But, and if you're better at one, you're more likely to be better at another cognitive task, but it doesn't mean that you're automatically brilliant at all of them if you are brilliant at one. It's the same with rationality, that you see a correlation between the different subtests, but actually there's still enough variation within a person. So you might have a particular strength in one area of rationality, but a weakness in another. Was his conclusion that high IQ individuals generally have a slightly higher RQ, but in particular for certain subtypes of RQ, they're lower? Yeah, that's exactly it. And but and that even, you know, and that even amongst individuals, you know, even amongst high IQ individuals, you'll have like enough variation that RQ rationality is something that we should be measuring and then cultivating separately from IQ and the other kind of academic uh, disciplines that we look at. So he gives the example of if you're recruiting, you know, some recruiters do use IQ tests still to kind of work out who's the best person to employ. Uh, but they're not really measuring accurately rationality. And you want a rational workforce, really. You don't want someone who's going to fall for fake news, uh, fall for bullshit from some kind of other company and make a bad investment. You want a rational workforce. So he suggests that actually we should be using the rationality quotient as a, a means of selecting candidates and also just as a means of identifying who could do with some training, like who needs to learn more about maybe how to read statistics or needs to have their awareness raised about things like the sunk cost fallacy so they don't fall for it in the future. Is there a relationship between high IQ and arrogance? Uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if anyone's looked at it like that, but Keith Stanovich had looked at the bias blind spot. Um, and that's essentially, you ask someone like, you tell them about these cognitive biases and then you ask them, do you think you're going to suffer from those biases yourself? And what he found was that people with the higher IQs tended to think that they were less susceptible than the other people. Um, they over-exaggerated their, um, their resilience, their uh, protection against the biases. So they thought they were much better than they actually were. And that was more likely the more intelligent they were, essentially. So in that you know, in that sense, I think the bias blind spot is an example of intellectual arrogance. And it's a serious problem because if you don't have awareness of the ways that your reasoning might uh, fail, then you're less likely to try to account for that. How can an individual listening slash watching this increase their RQ, their rationality quotient? 
Right. So this is still um, an area of research, but I, I think like there's very strong evidence that we can improve elements of rationality. Um, so, you know, just learning about these biases, there are some studies that show that once you have that awareness, and as long as you make sure that you apply that awareness as well, that you look when you're making a new decision, that you start to consider the biases that might be influencing your decision and then try to account for them. You know, that's a learnable skill. So that's one thing we can look at these books, you know, like The Intelligence Trap, like Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, we can learn from those books and then try to apply it and that will improve our rationality. Um, more generally, I think like there's research looking at critical thinking, so identifying logical fallacies, learning to um, to avoid just relying on like our gut reaction, so whether we think um, whether intuitively something feels right, to actually override that and to question our assumption and then to look for the evidence that contradicts it. That's something that we can all learn to do. That's going to reduce your susceptibility to something like motivated reasoning or the mysite bias. Um, another useful strategy when you're trying to appraise different pieces of information is to just try to put yourself in an alternative viewpoint where you you question whether you would be as convinced by a piece of evidence um, if its conclusions were the opposite. So it's kind of intricate that, but if you wanted to, if you were a Republican, say, and you saw a report that supported a Democrat's uh, economic policy, um, now you might instantly dismiss it because it doesn't come to the conclusion that you would want it to take. But what you can do to make sure that you're not just dismissing that evidence unfairly is to stop and think well would i have spotted the same flaws in this piece of, in this report if it had actually supported a republican viewpoint instead um that's just one example but it's very much just trying to to check that you're even-handed in the way that you're applying your critical thinking skills in the much earlier example of sir arthur conan doyle and the paranormal how does one know that what he was doing was in fact false. So one way is we say, well, the scientific consensus is so-and-so. But then my issue with that is that there's a beautiful study in your book, which I love, I'm going to start to quote, about if you give a test on gun violence to people who are conservative and liberal, and subtle reasoning shows that the gun violence in this example, the laws that are for gun control, end up causing more gun violence, but you have to be extremely careful with your math, in order to come to that conclusion, that the conservatives were more likely to find that loophole or the not trivial reasoning in order to get to that conclusion. And the liberals were more likely to say, oh yeah, gun control clearly reduces gun crime and then vice versa. So then that made me think, okay, well, if we ever appeal to scientific consensus, we have to wait for political leaning. And the majority of scientists are liberal, like 90% are liberal. There are studies on this. So then do we wait consensus by that? How do we do that? So that's my issue because there are so many aspects of this world of the themes that I try to investigate in theories of everything that I used to just dismiss and disparage like near-death experiences or connecting consciousness with quantum mechanics or even UFOs. Also, I was looking into the placebo effect, whereas prior I thought that it was just a measly effect, like a bit of pain relief. I didn't think it had much merit to it. I'm not saying that I've come to any conclusion, nothing like that, but it's not inconsequentially dismissed, at least not for me. 
I find that there's something there, or there could be something there. There are people like Penrose, who Nobel Prize winner dealing with quantum mechanics, consciousness. This is all what I would say is woo prior. I got this sense from your book, and I could be incorrect. I got the sense of a bit of condescension when the word paranormal was mentioned, or aliens, or UFOs. I'm listening to that thinking, okay, how was that made? With appeal to scientific consensus? How does that work? when there's already political biases, let alone other biases that maybe the majority of scientists have. So how do we weight that? So that's all what I'm thinking. So please help me through that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I'd say, you know, the quantum theory of consciousness, I actually think is a totally valid theory of consciousness. I don't think it's, um, I think it's unproven, but I think lots of theories of consciousness are also unproven. So it's like, it deserves, you know, considerable study and to be taken seriously. Um, so I, d I definitely think, you know, there are some things that we can dismiss too easily. Um, to say with the paranormal, though, I I mean, that's a tough one because it, you know, I have to accept that my own biases could be sh kind of shining through there. I mean, I would say there have been lots of good studies, carefully controlled studies, uh, trying to detect paranormal phenomena. And I think most scientists, even if they believe in the paranormal, would have to accept the um, setup of the experiments as being scientifically valid. And then you look at the outcomes, and you look at the outcomes of multiple experiments through meta-analyses, and you find that the effect size vanishes to zero, which is why even if I would be, so basically I, to calibrate my confidence, I would never want to dismiss out of hand something like a paranormal phenomena being, I would never want to say it's absolutely impossible, but I would say given the evidence that we've got from all of these experiments that I think have been well conducted, you know, maybe not dismissing the possibility, there could always be another experiment that someone's found like an even better way of testing for a potential paranormal phenomena and then maybe that would show that it does exist and we can always keep our mind open to that but I think until that experiment comes along we have to kind of look at the balance of the evidence today that's my uh view of that um and I, I think I think like yeah I think this is where like we need teams of people to collaborate who come from lots of different backgrounds and that's really the best way forward and so, you know, maybe with some of the existing experiments, you could say, well, well, that was done by like a skeptic. So they'd set it up to not be true. But what I think you should do is have like a set, um, pre-registration, which is really fashionable in science now. And across a big collaboration through multiple labs, you all set up in advance the experiments that you agree would show the effect that you want to prove. You gather all the data, it's all kind of anonymized, it's all analyzed independently. You do, you've already agreed on the statistical analyses. And then you look at the, you know, you, you kind of crunch the numbers, you find the results. And then because you've already tried to account for all of your biases in advance, you have to kind of accept the result that comes out. Now that actually was done with tests of precognition of paranormal phenomena where you believe that people can kind of sense the future. And when those um, uh, predetermined studies were conducted, pre-registered studies were conducted, they actually found, you know, they didn't find the effect uh, of the hypothesis. They didn't find 
that there was a paranormal phenomena. So that's why with that particular case, I would be very skeptical that there is one because, you know, one of the best studies to date didn't find it. But I think that's the kind of collaboration that we need where you get people of different beliefs working together, agreeing on a setup where everyone would be convinced by the outcome, whatever that may be. Um, and then you, you, you do the experiment and you, you kind of have just have to accept that like the results that come out of that aren't a result of bias. They're a result of the best science you could do at that particular time. Have you looked into the studies of Rupert Sheldrake or Dean Radin? Uh, no, I haven't. I can't say I have in like a huge amount of detail. Um, I, I think actually I did look into Sheldrake's, but I'm afraid I have forgotten that, um, the details of that, but yeah. I mean, obviously he's a huge name, but you know, that I think that's what we have to accept as well is that we can't just rely on someone's previous credentials, that we have to be very specific about the outcomes, you know, of the, the, the quality of the evidence itself independently of who kind of arranged it. And that's why it's important to have these teams of people who come from lots of different perspectives to kind of cancel out each other's biases potentially. What else would be, I'm struggling here, to find an issue that's not climate change, that is scientific, that has a huge divide between conservatives and liberals? Okay, I can just stick with climate change. I'm not a climate denier nor acceptor. Like I mentioned, anytime I look into any theory, I just find flaws and I'm just completely befuddled and addled and unassured. But anyway, the point is that when it comes to an issue where we make an appeal to scientific consensus, but it's a politically charged issue, how do we deal with the political leaning of the scientists going into it need to be taken into account and you need to somehow reweight the results? I don't know how to do that. And I don't know if that's the case in climate change. And I don't want to pick a particularly charged topic like climate change because I, yeah. like I mentioned, I'm just not interested. I'm not trying to cause any controversy here. So I'm trying to find another one, but you get the idea. So how do we deal with that? You mentioned that we need to have teams of people who are competing against one another from various backgrounds, but in absence of that, what do we do? Mm. Well, I mean, I think with climate change, you could have meaningful debates on the evidence. Um, so, I mean, the problem with climate change, very much like the pro uh, problem with proving that cigarette smoke causes cancer, is that it's very difficult to actually do causal tests of this. And I think that ultimately that is where the controversy lies. It's why people who don't believe in climate change could always say, you know, we're only viewing correlations and that maybe there's another factor driving the rise in temperatures, which is very difficult to deny, although some people do. Um, similarly, with cigarette smoke, tobacco companies um, had always said, well, we've never, you know, we haven't tested, done a a controlled trial where you have people about uh, randomly who you're giving some cigarette smoke from the age of 20 you're, and some about they weren't take a set of planets put humans on a set exactly you can't you couldn't do that and it was a, a cause for contro controversy and it allowed tobacco industries to deny the you know this kind of causal link that I think we now you'd be very strange if you denied the link between smoking and cancer. And it's the same with um, climate change. We don't have like a separate planet where we can set up um, uh, coal or, you know, carbon fueled industries for centuries to then check the effects on the climate. So, you know, that is a big issue. And we do have to look at ways around that. Now, my impression from looking into the evidence has been that 
multiple lines of evidence from lots of different sources does all suggest that there is this strong link between carbon emissions and climate change and that actually we have you know with the greenhouse effect we have a very well understood mechanism and that there's uncertainty absolutely we need to acknowledge there's considerable uncertainty with the size of the effects that we're going to see so the uh, models that scientists are using and climate scientists are using are very honest about you know the best and the worst case scenarios and that there's you know a difference between them um but yeah like save from doing that kind of absurd experiment i think you know that is going to be an issue to kind of resolve the uh the question um and i don't have an answer for doing that you can't it does have to be kind of what weight you give to the different lines of evidence uh, i think it's can sometimes help to look at people who have changed opinion from one side to the other and to look at the reasons for why they've done that um i think what i've been interested in psychologically is also how sometimes you can what happens when you try to overcome the look for psychological ways to overcome that motivated reasoning that comes from people's initial political standpoints so things like when you um try to cultivate their curiosity or you create a kind of safe space for them to talk where they don't have to fear being judged for their political viewpoint um you know what conclusions did they come to when they look at the evidence when they've been given those opportunities um i think those are some you know those are the things that we can be doing um but yeah it's a huge problem and i think it is one reason that the intelligence trap is so such a serious problem to consider is because like you as an enlightened society it's really worrying that you can have such divergent views given the evidence given the same evidence that people even highly intelligent highly educated people can come to such polarized viewpoints um i don't have the solution that's why i'm interested in the intelligence trap and how on both sides we can reduce those biases so we can try to get people to be looking at the evidence in the most rational way possible what is functional stupidity um that is where companies kind of create stupidity within the workforce due to their corporate culture um so you know there's lots of reasons for that one uh potential reason is simply that people uh simply that you have this kind of culture of relentless positivity and you don't really allow people to express doubt or criticism um so a company might say they only want solutions not problems um that kind of issue and we saw you know in the book i talk about the deepwater horizon um oil spill the fall of downfall of nokia you know all of these examples where companies hadn't been allowing their employees to think critically about the problems that they were facing um so that you had this emergent group think um problems were emerging but no one was taking notice of them or caring about them and so eventually uh you had these disasters that could have been avoided but each intelligent member of the workforce was just doing a narrow range of tasks and they were ignoring all of the warning signs around them what were some of the solutions in order to combat the functional stupidity uh i mean one is to cultivate within the workforce um a culture of disagreement so actually allowing people 
to even at the lowest levels of the corporate hierarchy, allowing them to kind of raise their hand and to say that they think there's a problem that's occurring. If someone had done that with Deepwater Horizon, if um, the engineers had said that they saw all of these anomalies in the processes that were going on within the rig, that could have been prevented. Similarly with Nokia, um, just to recap, you know, with Nokia, they were trying to develop a smartphone, but they kept on failing to meet their deadlines until Apple had come up with the amazing iPhone that just like swept them out of the market. You know, a lot of the employees were really worried about what was going on. They had lots of ideas, but they weren't being listened to. Um, they weren't allowed to kind of raise their problems about their workflow. Um, and so you want to avoid that. You want to give people the opportunity to disagree with their boss and for them to not be punished. You want those messages to then go up the hierarchy and to reach the people at the top. The concept of functional stupidity, as well as the anecdotes, the, ant the antidotes were developed in the vein of industrial and organizational psychology. So I'm curious, how does one apply this to an individual mind? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, with the intelligence trap in general, you know, we have to, first of all, look at our intellectual humility as one of those um, elements that was so important for the measures of uh, evidence-based wisdom that we discussed. And on an individual viewpoint, we have to feel free to accept when we're wrong about something or when we're uncertain about something and to not feel so defensive that we deny that possibility. Um, we have to cultivate our curiosity. So allowing ourselves to look into those tangents that fascinate us or that have aroused some kind of question that we want to be answered and rather than just ignoring that and trying to focus on just meeting like a productivity goal, actually just pursuing that curiosity, answering those questions. Um, we need to try to have an open mind in other ways too. So like I said, with the questions of, of analyzing evidence, you know, not just like only accepting the evidence that supports your point of view, but also trying to look at the evidence that might disregard or disprove your point of view, and then try to treat it as fairly as you would for the evidence that supports your argument, you know, balancing the two in hand. Um, you know, I think you obviously do that very well when you're looking at something like climate change, you know, from what you've said, it's like you're allowing yourself to be pulled in each direction. I think that's really important. Might not allow you to come up with a solution to climate change because the question is so knotty, but in your everyday life, you know, when you're dealing with like a professional situation, um, hopefully like you can integrate that information and that it might help you to come up with the solution that's more sophisticated, wiser than if you'd just fallen for my side bias and only selected the information that was uh, supporting your particular point of view. I think my openness, my quote unquote openness is buttressed by my closeness. So what I mean is that I'm a judgmental person by nature. And if I ever come across non-judgmental, it's because I'm fighting my tendency constantly. I want to say, actually, so I want to be that person that puts up the hand, actually, so-and-so-and-so. And, -so -and, -so. and when I'm looking at alternate viewpoints, I'm doing so because I want to have the ultimate, actually, so-and-so. I want to say, I don't know, some issue about plastic bottles. So I want to say, okay, well, what's the opponent say? So that I could say to those people who are pro-plastic bottles, actually, yeah. and then, oh, well, but what do they say to that? So I can say to those people, actually, my non-judgmentalness is instigated by my judgment. But that's what I think you need, open-mindedness in the sense that you're not drawn 
purely by your preconceptions and that you're willing to look into the broad range of evidence, but you also need to apply critical thinking. You know, you have to be analytical about what you're looking at, and then you have to synthesize it. You know, that's, I, I think that is fundamentally what we mean by kind of being a skeptic. Um, and then I think like what's really important, and this comes back to intellectual humility, is that like you can come to a conclusion and it's important, I think, that we don't always sit on the fence on every issue, but you can moderate your opinions on something. So you can say, I believe that this is the case. And you can even put a number, you know, you could say I'm like 60% certain, you know, that I think that this is where we stand on climate change to date or, or whatever you're looking at on, you know, plastic bottles, you know, and you can adapt to that. You might then come across a new, uh, a new study that, you know, shifts it one way or the other. But I think it really helps to have that kind of, to realise there's a spectrum of confidence. Whereas I think, especially with social media today and identity politics and this kind of tendency to get attention for having very strong views, we always think it's like you have to be 100% one way or 100% the other. And that's a trap. You want to accept that you it's sliding scale and you can move along that scale and that you don't have to become fixed at one point. Does the statement, I'm 60% certain about so-and-so fact, the utterance of it make you then 65% and then the next time you say it, it makes you 70%? Like, do you become entrenched just by saying it, even with an acknowledgement of uncertainty? I don't know. I'm asking, like, unless do you have to always say 50% right in the middle so that you don't get pulled in each direction? No, because I think actually to sit on the fence in that way is also not optimum to be honest. And so we know this from studies of super forecasters. And these are people who have been put through these huge experiments where they're asked to predict the outcomes of different geopolitical events. And it could be, you know, who wins Eurovision to, you know, who wins the World Cup to who wins an election to whether war will break sure. out in a certain region, you know, loads of different regions, uh, loads of different areas of, of political, you know, world activity. Um, and what happens with these uh, uh, these tournaments is that the people are asked to make their predictions and they cannot update their predictions up to a certain point and they have to give their confidence. Um, and the way it's scored is that someone who's always just, I don't know, it's 50% one way, it's 50% the other. They don't score very well uh, because yeah. it's the safe option. Um, so you're rewarded actually for uh, you know, veering one way or the other in your predictions. Like what, when they come to actually the final outcome and they're measuring your performance, you know, you're rewarded. But if you were right and you were more confident, you get more points than if you were right, but you showed only a low confidence. So, you know, it's a compl complicated measure that they use to do that. But, you know, essentially that's it. The more confident you are in a right outcome, the better you score. And the super forecasters consistently do perform better. They show more confidence in the areas where they're right. They show lower, much lower confidence in the areas where they end up being wrong. Um, so I think that shows that actually there is value in, you know, uh, expressing true confidence rather than always sitting on the fence. And actually it is possible to estimate that. You can actually rationally think, you know, what evidence have I looked at? How strongly do I feel that this is true? What what are the potential reasons that I might be wrong? And then you can gauge, you know, whether that is more likely or less likely and, and that actually is meaningful. 
where I was going with that, there are studies that if you write about some fact that you don't believe in, so let's say I like Kellogg's cereal, you don't. Yeah. Or you write about it, then all of a sudden you start to like it more. I believe some people in wartime use this. They say the Japanese would take in Americans and say, write about why you like Japan. And then all of a sudden they would. When making a statistical claim about confidence, for instance, if I was to say, I think it's 30% likely war will break out in Canada next year. You do so not by a rational analysis. It's extremely, yeah. unless you've, unless you have pages and pages, and even those pages will have assumptions with yeah. unless you've done some specific analysis to come to that number, you're using your intuition yeah. and you could be false about your own intuition too. So you could have just come up with a number. So that's why I was saying, if you simply state, well, well look, yeah. I'm 30% confident about so-and-so, then you'll become more entrenched to thinking you're 30%. Even though yeah. you didn't rationally come up with a number 30%, you didn't analyze that. It's a bit tricky to even give a confidence level unless yeah, it's something, something you've studied for years. So, you know, these people aren't studying these different issues for years, but they do look at them in depth when they're doing these super forecasting tournaments, you know. And they do some some uh, strategies that are kind of well accepted even by like, people like Daniel Kahneman. Like napkin calculations? Yeah, so like look at the base rate. Um, how likely is it that a country of a similar economy to Canada, similar size, similar history of warfare, how likely is it that that country is going to enter a war very quickly? And then, you know, you have a look at the base rate and, you know, you might see that it's like, well, it happens once in every 10 years, once in every 20 years, whatever. Um, you know, just coming up with that base rate actually makes you better than just going solely with your intuitions. But then these people update those predictions by looking more specifically at the different factors and they, uh but yeah you know there's no algorithm that will always give them the right amount but what this study showed is that actually they were capable the super forecasters especially with rating their confidence much better than chance much better than just kind of you know rolling a dice and picking their confidence based on that um so they were making the decisions better than normal and rating their confidence better than the average so it is possible um i think what you're saying is you know there's this phenomenon called this saying is believing effect which is useful in psychology and that is true um but i think like when you're aware of that possibility you can kind of protect against it and especially when these people are trying very hard to think very analytically about the situation at hand i think they are protected from that compared to someone who maybe is suffering you know undergoing propaganda in as a prisoner of war or that kind of situation or someone who's in a more you know relaxed kind of laboratory experiment looking at preferences mm -hmm. for cereal who might not actually be trying to think very carefully about what they rationally believe and especially like a preference for cornflakes is going to be a much more emotional response so much easier to sway i would say rather than these super forecasters who are very deliberately analytically kind of crunching data trying to come up with the best analysis that they can do i see david can you go over this study i believe it's a study or maybe it's just a result about all-star teams not being as a whole efficient as teams that have three, three stars, stars out of 10. yeah so i'll use like an example from soccer you know um you can kind of rank different players in soccer according to you know how they've performed in uh, matches such as the Premier League and then obviously you know they play for like a, a team like Manchester United in the UK or whatever you know that's separate from them when they gathered together for their country's teams um, 
So some players will play for England, some will play for France, some will play for the US, Canada, whatever. And what you find there is that, you know, if you have those high ranking players who've had a really good track record within their own uh, uh, sports teams, uh, football teams, you know, within the Premier League, you know, if you have too many of those kind of star players within a country's team, actually you reach a certain threshold, about 70%. And it's like diminishing returns that actually having more and more star players doesn't help your performance and may actually damage your performance. So actually you may, if you have a hundred percent of the star players within your team, you might actually perform worse than a country that only has 50% of kind of, of their team made up of these star players from the top teams of the world. Um, now, you know, why is that? Well, it seems like it's all related to kind of the team dynamics and the egos. And it seems that the people who are the really top performance and it's also true for basketball. It's also true for kind of investment banking. When you have teams of like the top investors who've been labeled stars, you know, then they work less well with their colleagues and their company as a whole performs worse. Um, it's all to do with the kind of rutting egos that they're not collaborating. They're not cooperating in the best way possible because they're much more concerned with their own kind of proving their own performance rather than uh you know working for the team and kind of dissolving within the team to produce the best overall communal effort that they can do and what about with iq like having a team dedicated to some intellectual task a team of let's say 10 is it better to have people who are all in the 99th percentile of iq or is it better to have five of them like how does that work yeah, I mean, when it when it comes to IQ, and we call that collective intelligence, where you get the team as a whole to solve an intellectual problem, um, there wasn't the evidence of the uh, too much talent effect, although no one had looked at that specifically, so I wouldn't rule it out. Um, but what they did find is that the average IQ of the team, or the top IQ, so if one team had an, especial, an especially clever person who scored you know, way up the scale, Neither of those were great predictors of how the team as a whole would perform. There was a correlation, but it was pretty weak. Um, so what proved to be much more important, again, was the uh, team dynamics. So kind of how equitable the conversation was between the different people in the team. Like, were they giving each person the chance to talk? Or did you have one person who thought they were really smart and were just talking over the other people? Uh -huh. um, did you have... Uh, you know, did you did you have some people who just weren't really like picking up on the nonverbal cues as well? Measures of emotional sensitivity, so how much people were paying attention to the other people's facial expressions, that actually proved to be a better prediction of the collective intelligence than the average IQ of the people. Steve Jobs had this saying that what he wants to do or what he does at Apple is get people who are extremely intelligent and extremely disagreeable and just put them all in a room and like rock tumblers, what comes out after are diamonds. Does this conflict <laughs> with that? Or was he mistaken about that? Or was he lucky? No, I mean, I think, you know, so this is all about what kind of team dynamic do you create? And you could have a case of like, you know, like um, Kennedy's, government during the Bay of Pigs uh, disaster where you have highly intelligent people but they're all agreeing with each other and they're not expressing dissent and you know it doesn't it doesn't have good outcomes um, or you could have like a group of people who are very willing to disagree but in a very 
amicable, constructive way. And I think that's the ideal dynamic, really, where people are absolutely willing to express uh, discord within the group, but they're also then looking for ways to to balance those points of view, um, not just to kind of combine them all in this kind of Frankenstein's monster of different viewpoints, which you could see with some creative tasks. You could be like, we're all going to contribute something and it just becomes a mess. But actually, you know, really trying to think very hard about like, and being very honest with each other, like, does this work? Doesn't this work? Is that rational? Is that irrational? You know, and then coming to the group decision in that kind of way with a constructive discussion. And what the research shows is that actually when you have this kind of dialogue, um, that allows disagreement and allows constructive uh, disagreement, then that actually, you know, you do get great outcomes and you get better outcomes than you could have from any single individual. So they do work then as the kind of more than the sum of their components, those teams. What did you want to include in the intelligence trap that you had to exclude because of whatever reason, pacing, the editor said, no, it's too bloated? Uh... Not much. So there was a section that had been longer um, about a school called the Intellectual Virtues Academy. Um, Intellectual Virtues Academy. That's right. It's in Long Beach. And they, you know, it's a great school. I visited them. They had uh, tried to look at all of these elements of what I would say are evidence-based wisdom, although they didn't call that, but things like cultivating intellectual humility amongst the kids, curiosity, the growth mindset, um, getting them to look at different perspectives. They've done all of these things. And again, with educational outcomes, uh, it's really difficult to compare different schools because, you know, it's so tough, like, to account for the different backgrounds of the parents and stuff. But those kids were doing really well academically, and they also really seemed to be embracing these different virtues. And so I like to think that later on, when they've gone on to university and then into later life, that they're going to have, they're going to be more sophisticated thinkers as a result of that education that are praised more than just intelligence, but also all of these other traits that I think are so important for thinking in a sophisticated and rational way and wise way, you know, that that will really serve them well. And it was really fascinating. Look for me, um, uh, kind of insight for me of how this could help to change education without sacrificing the things that we've appreciated previously, like they were still doing well academically, but also just helping to develop like better thinkers, uh, you know, more generally. What about for the expectation effect? Was there anything that you had to cut that you, oh man, I, I wish that was included? No, I mean, there were just some things that I didn't think there were there was enough evidence for. Um, you know, a study showing that, weirdly, if you expect to get flu over the winter, you're more likely to get flu over the winter. And that's really difficult. It's really difficult to explain. Um, it could just be a difference in, well, I say just, I think it's equally fascinating, could be a difference in behavior. And if you are so cautious about not catching any illness, that actually maybe you're getting less physical exercise, maybe you're actually exposing yourself less to kind of microbes more generally, so your immune system isn't performing so well. Who knows? But yeah, uh, definitely that was a result. But I wanted to wait to see when there's more evidence to kind of replicate that and then to explore the mechanism. Um, that's the main one. Uh, and then how our expectations can shape personality change. So 
Uh, essentially, I have written a piece for this. This should be on this. This should be coming out in the Guardian that looks at whether we have a kind of mindset of believing that our personality can develop and grow as we get older. Does that actually help people to change the way they are? And the research shows that it does. So people who have this mindset that they're kind of malleable people, they find it easier to develop greater reserves of conscientiousness. Um, if they are introverts, they find it easier to develop into extroverts and to overcome shyness. You know, it's very important. Can you expand on that? And is that the same as the growth mindset or is that different? Yeah, I mean, it's very much related to the growth mindset, actually. I would just say it's also the growth mindset had traditionally been um, concerned with intelligence, but this is using the similar principle, but just looking at personality. Like, do people believe that personality is fixed or do they think that it's malleable? Do they believe in the brain's plasticity and ability to change? Do they see things as um, emotional regulation, as something that you either have or you don't? And if you're angry, you cannot possibly calm yourself down or do you see emotions as being something that actually are within your control and that you can you can change the way you process emotions over time and all of those you know elements uh which are all related to the growth mindset yeah they make a huge difference for how people develop whether you get stuck in this rut of behaviors that you don't find suit your goals or whether you can actually evolve and adapt have you looked into studies on yogis and their expectation effect, like that is what people claim to be able to do under intense meditation. No, I haven't. I, I would be interested in that. Yeah, it's a good, yeah, it would be a great study if someone were to do it. There's some people like Wim Hof, who I don't I'm know if you know who Wim Hof is. Yeah, I yeah. believe he believes that through his breath technique, and I don't, I don't think, think that's that... entirely mental. It's he's actually doing a behavior. He believes that he can repel a virus or viruses of a certain sort, and he can train people, and you can get a study where you impulse this intervention on a set and then have a neutral other set. Have you looked into those claims at all? I haven't. I mean, I'd be super fascinated. I wouldn't so like to talk about calibrating my confidence. I would say yeah. I would be kind of... 50-50 on that at the moment, not knowing the details. But, you know, we do know that the mind is connected to the immune system um, and that things like meditation can influence your the activity of your immune system, and especially if you have chronic inflammation, um, which can be caused by kind of anxiety, you know, and can be affected by your breathing as well, that that can then throw your immune system out of balance so you're more susceptible to certain illnesses. So it doesn't sound like implausible to me, but I just, I would be interested to see that in a, you know, reasonably sized study to look at that, the difference between the two groups, you know, yeah, it's fascinating. This is potentially an ill, no, this is an ill-defined question. I'm sure it's one you've thought about. How far can the placebo effect slash the expectation effect be taken? Because some, some people, people through meditation, med which I'm synonymizing with an expectation effect, can boil water or at least can raise the temperature of their body drastically and it's something that you thought was only a part of the autonomic nervous system like you cannot control oh, that yeah. and then there are other cases like you mentioned of not as quote-unquote trivial as pain even though pain is not yeah, trivial yeah. it's something that we would think okay yeah you can coerce yourself into pain you can take yourself out of it mentally how far can it be taken the placebo and expectation effect okay i mean i think like we have to be really careful in defining the limits of what the science shows that it can do. And, you know, 
I do think it is limited in what it can achieve. Um, I don't think that by changing your expectations, you can shrink a tumour, for example. You know, and I think there have been studies that try to look at things like optimism amongst cancer patients. And, you know, I don't think you see a strong effect from that. And I actually think there's a danger with overclaiming that people are only going to be disappointed or that they might even start to blame themselves, you know, if they are not getting better from some illness like, um, you know, right, like cancer, right. they think it's because they're not being positive enough. That only adds to the stress and makes them, you know, makes a bad situation even more terrible. So that's why I think, like, I've tried really carefully to look at, like I said, like the effects that I think are supported by, like, a substantial number of studies. Um you know, it, so your book is like the scientific version of the secret. Yeah, right. that's exactly how I want it to be. Yeah, and it's like you know, but also I think just because it can't perform what I would say are miracles, you know, like curing cancer, doesn't mean that it's not really significant and that it doesn't have a really profound effect on our life. And actually, we know that say your beliefs about aging do seem to predict your longevity, uh, but that's not through some kind of unknown mechanism that's actually through very well-established mechanisms and essentially if you associate aging with uh decline and disability and all of these things well that makes you less active so there's a behavioral component it's also like increases your stress you know over months and then years because if you think as you're getting older that your life is kind of going to fall to pieces Burn. that makes all of the challenges you face more stressful it raises cortisol levels so that they're chronically high it raises inflammation, that causes biological damage, and then that predisposes you to illness. And then we know that that can change uh, gene expression within the cells, so you start to have the biological clock, as it's known, kind of ticking at a faster rate. And we've, all that's very well documented. And so that's incredible. And actually, according to one longitudinal study, the difference between people with the positive and the negative views of aging, uh, the positive view would be that you see aging as a time of kind of greater wisdom, you know, new possibilities. The difference between those two mindsets actually was about seven and a half years in lifespan. So it's, you know, really profound. But I'm not... And quality of life increased as well, or no? Just yeah, in... exactly. Quality of life, you know, let's just... So it's best of both worlds. Great, great, Susceptible great. to Alzheimer's, to cardiovascular disease, all of these things. Um, but it's like, but I don't find any of those mechanisms miraculous, actually. I just think it's it's what we know we know about how the mind can affect behavior. We know how the mind can affect stress and stress can affect illness. It's just linking them all together and showing that something that you you might not think to be that important actually over time, over decades, adds up and really makes a difference. Yeah, that's remarkable. Do you imagine that if you were to intervene in someone's life, if you were to impart in them a, a set sentence. of beliefs, that that would increase their not only quality of life, but their lifespan. And if so, what are those beliefs like if you were to prescribe yeah, it with all the disclaimers that come along with that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, no one has performed because ideally you would have like a 40 year study where you'd change people's beliefs and you kept on coming back to them. You know, the research hasn't been around long enough to do that. But there are short term studies where you, Kind of give people like an exercise program and then some of these people are also given uh, psychological support alongside the exercise program so they might be encouraged to kind of think about their bodies in a different way to kind of embrace the fact that 
as they're exercising, that they're actually outperforming people of a similar age to themselves. You know, okay. that they're... So you falsify the data to tell them this? Or you just... yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember, to be honest. It might have been falsified in one study. I think in others, you're just kind of feeding them this positive information that, you know, okay. your health is within your control and as you age that you can you can actually, like, um, benefit from exercise and, you know, that there, there are these other opportunities no matter how old you are. Um, and what you find is that when you change the mindset in those ways, that um, whether it's through deception or whether it's just through kind of positive encouragement, that you see greater benefits for those people. So that's, you know, it's only over a couple of months, but like you do get this signal that changing the mindset really is being beneficial. There's another study that had looked at giving people subliminal uh, signals through a kind of computer game they were playing. These were old people. And they found that actually giving them subliminal signals to give them positive associations with aging. But that, again, was associated with a, an improvement in their health and that actually the size of those improvements were equivalent to doing a proper exercise program. So really quite significant. What does this say about the relationship of consciousness to reality? The fact that if, if we I'm believe so-and-so, it increases the chances of so-and-so. Believe, which is an aspect of consciousness, increases the chances of so-and-so in an external reality, if there is external, because there are sure, some people who are idealists and so on. Right, exactly. So, you know, I don't... To be honest, I'm fascinated by all kinds of theories of consciousness and the idea that we're living in a simulation and all of that. I don't think this research tells us anything about that. Um, but I do think on a more superficial kind of level, not as profound as like, what is the nature of reality. But like, you know, this is essentially what we're showing is that our thought processes are changing our reality in the future. And again, that's through just very, I wouldn't say mundane, but very well accepted behavioral, perceptual and physiological mechanisms that we know happen day to day hour to hour and all this is showing is that actually sometimes the effects can you know add up and be really profound um you know I, I always like to say actually like we know that our mindset can shape our bodies like all the time if you think of your favorite food your mouth starts mm, salivating mm, it's producing mm, right. enzymes to help you to digest that food you know that is an example of an expectation effect um if you feel nervous you start to get cramps in your stomach that's an example uh, of uh, your uh, brain affecting your digestive system. This, okay. the expectation effect, is just showing that actually, you know, those might seem trivial, tri like trivial examples, but actually there are lots of ways that we haven't acknowledged or um, put to use previously that we can harness to improve our wellness and our health and even our longevity. And that now we have that knowledge, there are very specific techniques you can use to to really make the most of the mind-body connection. Have you looked into the subject of ego depletion? Yeah, so, I mean, that's fascinating. Um, again, like an area where you had like a huge body of research and then like there seems to be some contradictory evidence, but essentially... Are you the... referring to the replication crisis? Because I don't know if yeah. that... Okay. But then one reason that they might not be replicable, these studies, is the fact that actually mindset plays a role in ego depletion. So if you expect to be depleted, you become more depleted. If you think that your willpower is kind of unlimited and that actually the more you practice your willpower, the more you kind of get into that zone when you're doing those difficult problems. If you believe that, then actually that becomes your reality. 
and you find that your concentration kind of, uh, you know, actually grows as you focus on the task ahead. So yeah, you know, uh, where we stand on ego depletion in general, like I wouldn't like to say, but absolutely mindsets are having an effect there in some way or another. Before we start to wrap, I want you to explain what the pilot site test is and then why is it important? Okay. I mean, this was, um, study from a few years ago, I'd say when the research on the expectation effect was really starting to expand beyond the placebo effect in medicine. And it was just looking at how people's vision is affected by their expectations. Um, now I've mentioned throughout the conversation that one of the pathways that the expectation effect can influence us is through perception. Um, we know this from all kinds of studies, you know, the taste of food depends on what you expect the food to taste like. If you, the same chemical that causes Parmesan to smell so delicious is actually also behind the smell of vomit, but our conscious experience is very different depending on which we believe that we're smelling. Um, it just seems that this also happens with vision and with the clarity of vision. So this study by Ellen Langer at Harvard University seemed to suggest that if you lead people to believe that their vision is going to be uh, more acute than it really is, then that can actually help them to see more clearly. And it just seems to be that the we know the brain does a lot of work in tidying up our vision. Um, the stuff that hits our retinas, those patterns are not what we consciously experience because there's so much processing going on in the brain. And it seems that actually this, when you, she kind of primed people to believe that they were going to have better vision by putting them in a flight simulator and telling them that they were kind of uh, acting as expert pilots or that she gave them exercises that led them to believe that their eyesight was going to improve or she turned the sight test upside down so that the smaller letters were at the top and people have this association that they can read the first line on the sight chart. You know, in all of these cases, multiple experiments, people's vision did seem to improve compared to the control groups who weren't given the same kind of priming to, to believe that their sight was going to be better than, than it was. Um, now, you know, I, I'm really careful in my book to say this isn't uh, an excuse to kind of throw away your glasses. You know, these were kind of short-term experiments. Mm. Um, but I do think it's still quite profound that, like, what we're... that something as basic as kind of eyesight can, in some, to, to a certain extent, be influenced by our beliefs. And actually, there's independent research showing that, you know, like, if, you, if you're a bit short-sighted, and you see a road sign, but you know what it's going to say. Well, you actually see that sign more clearly than if it was an unfamiliar sign where you don't know what the letters are going to read. So actually, it fits with multiple studies. It's not just Ellen Langer's research that shows that um, expectations can shape visual perception. It was just one study, though, that I found especially fascinating. See, I'm wondering now if there's a connection between this and something we talked about from your earlier book. I asked, is there an association between arrogance and intelligence? And he said, not exactly, at least that hasn't been studied, but there is an association with people who are intelligent then believing that they're less susceptible to cognitive biases. And I'm wondering now, if priming for visual acuity, if you tell someone, hey, you, you have great vision, then all of a sudden you can see a bit better. If that's the case, then maybe it's not intelligence breeds arrogance, but arrogance breeds intelligence because you're like, hey, I believe I'm much more intelligent. And then so I become, become a bit more intelligent. 
Now, maybe I'm taking it a bit too far, but is there an association there? Is it like an increase of five IQ points, 10 IQ points? Can't say that. Well, like, um, so, you know, there've been all of these apps looking at kind of brain training and there'd been, again, contradictory evidence, but some really seem to show that if people do these kinds of games, then they improve their IQ scores. Um, but what scientists at around 2015 realized was the way that these participants were recruited kind of primed them to expect that they were going to see those improvements. You know, the adverts were often like, um, you know, want to help with a test of brain enhancement, you know, um, come to our lab in like this room. Um, and they looked, they analyzed that data, those historic studies, and they showed that those with the kind of posters that had primed the expectation of improved intelligence did see greater gains because of the um, associated with the brain training compared to those who hadn't. Um, they then did their own independent study, which showed exactly what they'd predicted, that actually if you tell people that by doing these tasks they're going to get smarter, they improve their performance by about five IQ points. So it did seem to suggest that there is a benefit to that, and actually it's been replicated just earlier this, um, well, uh, last year, at sure. the end of last year, similar study. Um, so I do think like having that self-belief can be really valuable. But in my opinion, like we don't want to develop overconfidence because that is also associated with greater susceptibility to numerous biases, right, which right, is going right, to, right. it might help your IQ, it might also then damage sure. your reasoning and decision-making. But I think what's important there is still to kind of recognize this, your capacity to grow and improve. And it comes back to what we were talking about with how we can boost our learning. If you see frustration as being inherent in your intellectual growth, that will make your intellectual growth more likely. And I think it's, you know, very much the same phenomena. Now, taking this back to how far can we push this? I know that's a dangerous question. It sounds like we have untapped potential. Now, what that is in terms of a percentage, well, it may vary from task to task if you can even place a number on it. Now, there is a phenomenon called induced savantism or mm, sorry, sorry, acquired savantism. You don't induce it. It's just called acquired savant. For people who don't know, there are some people called savants who they seem to be not up to par intellectually in most tasks, except one where they're extremely versed, extremely yeah. well. So like they could read at a rate five times the ordinary person, or they, they can, can play music just from ear hearing a song once, or recreate a scene from seeing it in like a second. Then there are some people who through some neurological defect that occurs later in life, they were ordinary people, and they're even ordinary, quote unquote, afterward. But after the trauma, they have acquired some ability that ordinarily is associated only with savants. And it seems like most of our neurological activity is inhibitory. Strangely enough, we yeah. would think that, hey, we have this whole prefrontal cortex is doing all these calculations yeah. and uh, producing content. It's stymieing most of what's occurring. So it's like stopping some reflexes. Well, anyway, I'm, I was just wondering if you have come across a relationship between the expectation effect and acquired savantism. I happen. And As remarkable abilities in general. So I'd have to say, I'm not 100% familiar with the research on acquired savantism too, because I'd, I'd heard, I'm not sure if it's true with some of the people who show amazing creativity. Well, they show amazing kind of productivity with their creativity, but whether it's actually independently rated as being original and innovative and fantastic, you know, in the same way that, say, the um, innate 
uh, savants are. You know, that I think I'd heard that was another matter that maybe they they they're not inhibited and that they really you know have a feel compelled to create but whether it's actually of a high quality according to people's standards it's another question but i do think there is this kind of you know even just creating is something that we hold ourselves back from like lots of people have creative anxiety where we're so worried about expressing ourselves that we just don't do it so we find brainstorming really uh, excruciating we feel we put limits on you know our own idea generation I do think that actually the expectation effect is really relevant in that case. Um, it might not make you immediately have the creativity of Leonardo da Vinci, but I think if you have this ability, uh, this belief that your creative efforts are valued and that actually it's an incremental process, you recognize that your first idea might not be your best idea, but that you might iteratively improve your ideas over time. I think that's the kind of belief that will have an impact on your overall um, quality of your creative output over time. If you see it as something that can be nurtured and you recognize that you you don't have to limit yourself, but you can actually give free reign to your creativity and then refine it. I think that's what you really want to aim for. So David, what's your next book on? And what are you looking forward to this year? Yeah, so well, I'm looking forward to writing this book, which is all about... Um, social connection i'll say that so i'm super excited about that um and then just you know other elements of my life like i've been learning italian for like a few years and i'm gonna um only go to italy to spend like a month or so there but I'm really oh, looking great. forward to kind of getting the chance to kind of immerse myself in that culture um yeah those are the main things and then just looking forward to my journalism like i love just love coming up with new ideas researching learning new new stuff and then finding the best way to present it. And I'm continuing to love that. How did you learn Italian? Was it through an app or? No, it was pretty, very boring and old fashioned through like evening classes. And then um, I've got Italian friends that I kind of speak to really regularly now. So it's just constant practice and constant, um, you know, reading Italian stuff, listening to podcasts, just, you know, very boring just kind of putting in the work yeah did you start to learn italian because you heard the research about if you know another language you're more open or you're more rational i remember this was in the expectation effect i'm not sure yeah it did influence me a bit but it's also just i'm super interested in italian culture um and the language and the literature like so yeah it's a combination really it's just that feeling you want to be able to communicate with another group of people and to see the world from their perspective. I think that's what's always fascinated me. Great. Which place in Italy are you looking forward to going? Uh, Rome. Great, great. You've never been? Uh, I've been on holiday, but I'm just looking forward to kind of... I think the longer you spend in a place, like the more you know, familiar you become with it, the kind of deeper you can understand it. So, yeah. Great, great. Well, man, it's, it's a pleasure thank you so much for spending almost three hours with me if not three hours i appreciate it yeah my pleasure thanks for such interesting questions all right you just watched the episode with david robson thank you so much and on the last point about people being afraid to create i find that to be the case people just need a push and so earlier this year or earlier last year we had this physics and consciousness explication contest where people who are just on the verge of producing content 
but needed a bit of a nudge, we tried to give him that at least modicum of an incentive. So the PACE one, the Physics and Consciousness Explication Contest, the winners are announced either now or they're going to be announced and you can look out for a video on that. There are several wonderful, wonderful videos that came from this contest, this expedition, this exploratory effort that we engaged in together. It's fascinating. It's unbelievable. If you'd like to contribute to Theories of Everything, then visit patreon.com slash kurtjimungle. Each dollar helps. Your support is what allows there to be a full-time editor who's editing this right now, allows there to be an operations manager who manages my, well, who does virtually everything around here and constantly manages my disquietude and my fretfulness and my stress and the fact that I'm unnerved because there's so much to do. He relieves that. He takes many plates away from me. So that's great. You're allowing that support so that we can put out even higher quality podcasts with even higher frequency. Thank you so much. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.